0: My perception as a 12 years old boy uh, was that uh, there is a monk and he is peaceful, that he is protecting others and he is peaceful, even though he is attacked by bad people. And uh, I was so inspired by that. And when I was 12, I remember that the thought came to me, I also want to be a monk like that. And then later, when I was 15, I, uh, tr- I started to read books about magic and uh, from them, about psychic powers especially, and from them I learned about Buddhism. So I learned that Buddhist monks attained the highest psychic powers. And for me, this idea that I would have these powers was a kind of like security, you know, like this will make me safe in my life, you know, if I have these psychic powers. Only later, as I studied Buddhism, I found out that there are even more, even like higher, nobler uh, purposes of meditation, such as getting free from all mental defilements, getting free from rebirth. Considering how uh, impossible that is, uh, um, the Buddha then suggests, and even rarer it is, to be born as a human to get this opportunity to attain enlightenment. And I thought, aha, so I'd better do something. I felt that in Myanmar, I will find such monk. And I did, I did find so many, uh, so many uh, exquisite uh, persons in Myanmar, not just monks, but also nuns and lay people. And uh, so I came to Myanmar, I met those people. At the current time I'm basically maintaining what I have experienced in the past because now I'm dedicating more to others. I'm teaching meditation, I'm teaching the Buddha's teachings, uh, sharing what I know in several languages and uh, trying to make the Buddha's teachings more accessible to all others so that they are inspired on their path toward meditation, toward enlightenment.
1: I first started thinking about this podcast project about a year ago, but until only recently, I never imagined that I would be able to actually get it off the ground. The resources were simply not there. However, that all changed when a surprise donation arrived several months back, enough to at least fund a short run of episodes. There were suddenly a lot of important questions to consider, what recording equipment to use, what kind of radio persona best suited me, and what overall format and structure we wanted, and of course, what guests to invite. For the latter question several names came up right away as obvious must-have choices, one of them being Usarana. But while many more names came to mind in the days and weeks that followed, he was always near the top of that list. And why wouldn't he be? A monk from the Czech Republic who set his sights on full ordination in Myanmar from the time he met a Burmese forest monk in Sri Lanka after three years of study at a top Buddhist university there, and he so admired this monastic's comportment that Usarana's only desired destination at the completion of his studies was the golden land. Usarana and I go way back. I was one of the first people to meet him after he arrived here about eight years ago. Although I'd had nearly twice as much Burmese language study as him, even then our language ability was about equal. But now it's not even a question, as he gives Dhamma discourses lasting hours to Burmese audiences and oversees his own meditation retreats. Usarana and I worked closely together for several years on the Meditator's Guidebook project, and I can safely say that the information provided in those pages would have taken on a much different shape, and certainly much less depth, without his involvement. I have rarely met anyone so ravenous for information, and so meticulous in categorizing even the smallest details in a comprehensive manner. So the question was not if we should approach Usarana, nor even how soon to bring him on, because the obvious answers were yes and immediately. Rather, the question was how to best use our time together fully aware that we would be within the breadth and depth of his knowledge in almost any Dhamma-related topic, and in whatever direction that conversation would take us. For this reason, I decided I would ask him to come more than once, and felt the best use of time in this initial interview was to learn about what had brought him to the Golden Land. In our subsequent interviews, we hoped to explore pertinent topics related to Vipassana practice, monasticism, and other contemporary issues relating to Burmese Buddhism. Once grounded in this base of understanding, how and why Usarana ended up here, his later answers should be all the more relevant and impactful. Although Usarana has by now become something of a celebrity in Burmese culture, he remains resolute to return to the forest for secluded meditation after the completion of the many projects he's currently working on. His mastery of the Burmese language, combined with his expert use of new technologies and social media and his comprehensive study of the Abhidhamma An especially revered text in Myanmar, has elevated him to a unique place not only in contemporary times, but really in all of Burmese Buddhist history. Because when else has a foreigner come from so far away to integrate himself so thoroughly in not only the local culture and society, but also local religion and monasticism? And since the country has opened to the outside world after many decades of restrictions and challenges, a new chapter in the development of Burmese Buddhism is unfolding, and it's a chapter in which Usarana will surely be included. It was great to take this chance to sit down and hear what he's been up to until now. Get ready because a lot of good stuff is coming your way. Okay. Yeah. Great. So I think we, we met, what year was it? 2012?
0: Mm, certainly not 2012, possibly 2013 or 14. 2012, I, I just came to Myanmar.
1: Okay, I think I met you pretty soon after you came. I'm not exactly sure how long it was, but uh-huh. so it could have been 2012, 2013. 13 sounds about right, actually. Yeah, at Min. So you, when you first came to Myanmar, you were at Min initially, I think.
0: Yes, uh, I came to Myanmar and right away to Mendoya.
1: Right, yeah, and then we, uh, you were you were at Shuiyumin for a while. I met you very soon after you came after, and then not long after that started on this uh, guidebook project for meditators and you were instrumental in helping out for the research on that, both in terms of books and people and translations and research trips. So we, we worked together extensively on that.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for giving me that great opportunity.
1: Yeah, well, your help uh, raised it up a level for sure. Uh, meditators who benefited from that definitely can feel grateful for you. Um, and I'm trying to think, when was the last time we saw each other? Do you remember? Uh, I don't. <laughs> a few years ago. Anyway, it's good to meet now. Mm-hmm. It was a good excuse to be back in touch. It definitely changes happened in both our lives since then. One of the things I'm curious about to start with is just your, your background. You're from Czech Republic. Or are you from a small town, big city? I'm from
0: Czech Republic, and uh, I'm from a relatively big city. I'm not from a very big city, but it's certainly not uh, a small city, not a small town, not a village for sure. Uh, it's uh, Pilsen. It's uh, in the west of
1: uh, Czech Republic. Famous for beer, right? And uh, for Škoda cars. Okay, two things. Right. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your family and upbringing?
0: Uh Yes, uh, I um, I was born to to uh, <laughs> uh, to a family. Uh, uh, I have a young, younger brother and uh, an older brother, but they have uh, a different uh, a different father. We have the same mother, different father. Our mom passed away when I was five, and uh, then uh, since then, uh, even before that, uh, we were separated in one way or another. So before that I was with my younger brother my elder brother was with his uh, father somewhere else then after our mom passed away I stayed with I stayed alone and uh, my younger brother and older brother both uh, stayed with their father they had the same father and I have a different father so I stayed with them, uh, with him uh, and then when I was uh, around 12 years actually uh, I met my brothers again after like seven years of uh, not meeting them at all. Right. And it, it actually, the, the, there are just so many fun, funny stories. We met in an underground passage, you know, underground there are like stores, whatever. And we met there and I didn't recognize them. Elder brother like stopped me and he said, Hey, you are our brother, aren't you? And I say, I don't know you. What should
1: I say? (laughs) Uh, So he recognized you by your facial features? They
0: recognized me. I didn't recognize them at all. I thought there are some strangers. Uh, So uh, that way we met uh, again. And then uh, uh, I studied at a... Catholic high school since my age of 11, 12. So you came from a Catholic background? Uh, Not uh, really Catholic, not devoted for sure. My dad believes that there is a God creator, but that's pretty much all of uh, his Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother's uh, beliefs are not not known to me. And uh, when I studied Catholic high school, uh, I learned a lot about Christianity. I tried to, I like tried out to be Christian. Mm. I visited the the how would you call it? the like temple room. Um, and um, there uh, I uh, like dedicated myself to the devotion, but I didn't get any feedback. I didn't get any feedback from from up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and uh, so then I uh, put it aside because there was like nothing giving me, you know energy, nothing encouraging me. So then I put it aside. And then later, when I was 15, I uh, tr- I started to read books about magic and uh, from them, about psychic powers especially, and from them I learned about Buddhism. So I learned that Buddhist monks attained the highest psychic powers. And thanks to that, I uh, started to learn about Buddhism and I found this teaching on gamma, uh one's deeds and uh, consequences of deeds, or uh, anatta, not self very uh, resonating with me. I felt like, wow, this is it, like this is the truth, it must be like this, and then uh, I knew that this is what I want to follow. So then with these great answers to, to my huge questions, which I had already since my age of five, um, I, uh, I was so enthusiastic to learn more, but I didn't have any Buddhist friend at all, like zero. The most Buddhist friend that I had was somebody who like uh, would uh, lit a candle in front of a Buddha. That was all what, what was his Buddhism. So uh, then when I was 18, I uh, by email, I emailed a Zen monastery in Czech Republic, and they forwarded that email to their friend who was a Theravada monk who was originally from Czech Republic. And he forwarded my email that I want to become a monk to his students who previously were monks, but now they teach meditation in Czech Republic. So then I visited them and I learned uh, meditation from them. And that's how I got to meditation, too.
1: So, So it sounds like your early interest wasn't just even initially in Buddhist meditation or study, but right away wanting to be a monk. Sounds like that was, that yes, was uh, very yes, early on. That's true. Hmm, that's unusual. So for other practitioners, foreign practitioners that are on the path, often there is an early interest in meditation or Buddhism, and then eventually that grows into monasticism. But for you, it sounds like from the very beginning, initially, the interest in monasticism was always there.
0: I wanted uh, to get the psychic powers of like flying in the air you know disappearing and appearing and knowing minds of others and knowing everything that I want to know that was just so uh such a uh, you know fantastic idea that I will be able to fly and disappear you know and do whatever I want I can multiply myself you know and know anything I want this was so good you know from the standpoint of somebody who has Nothing, you know. Who has no wisdom? Who has no religion? Who doesn't know what uh, is the purpose of life? For somebody who has just a dad who goes to work and uh, me, you know, going to school and what's next, you know, no real dedicated future or purpose. And for me, this idea that I would have these powers was a kind of like security, you know, like this will make me safe in my life, you know, if I if I have these psychic powers. So this was one of the main purposes why I wanted to be a monk, because the book said that the monks have these psychic powers. So then, of course, I need to become a monk to get them. Only later, as I studied Buddhism, I found out that there are even more, even like higher, nobler uh, purposes of meditation, such as getting free from all mental defilements, getting free from rebirth. I read quite a number of books, and uh, comparing uh, the different sources uh, of learning magic, I found out that the Buddhist, that the Buddhist monks attained the most powerful uh, psychic powers. Mm. That was, of course, my, uh, my own conclusion, but that, that's how it happened.
1: Right. And earlier you said that in reading about Anicca Nata Dukkha, that that resonated with you right away. What about that message resonated with you?
0: For me, not necessarily Anicca Dukkha resonated with me. I couldn't understand it. Like when I read uh, a book about Buddhism where the Buddha asked the monks, so monks, do you think that this body is permanent or impermanent? And then I thought, wow, I don't know. What's the answer? And there's the answer. They're impermanent, sir. And I thought, aha, I didn't know that. Mm. And I thought like, uh, how did they know it? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. So this was a very
1: new concept. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, then, uh, like the Buddha s- uh, says, well, then if this body is impermanent, it is pleasant or unpleasant. And I thought, wow, I didn't know this. Mm. What's the answer? And they say, it is unpleasant. Aha! Uh-huh. Is it really unpleasant? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't know anything about Anichaduka, and uh, with and the idea that it could inspire me or not is is very beyond the the level of my thinking at that time because I if I couldn't even answer the uh, like answer those questions. Uh, I couldn't even understand it, like why, why is this body impermanent, why Why wouldn't it be permanent, why is it, like I can understand that it's like impermanent, that it needs, that one needs to die, it's obvious, but like why would they answer immediately that it's like impermanent, couldn't there be like some other answer, like partially permanent, right. partially impermanent, or maybe permanent this way, permanent, uh-huh. you know. And um, there was nothing like that. Uh-huh. And then I uh, thought, like, what? Why would this body be suffering? You know, isn't there so much of pleasure, like when I eat tasty food and when I enjoy sensual pleasures? Why wouldn't it? Why would it be just outright suffering? You know, without any thinking. So I couldn't understand it. So because I couldn't understand it, it of course couldn't inspire me or mm. in any way uh, address me. However, uh, the idea of not self was very important because. I was always thinking like, who am I? Like, what's this me, you know, why am I here, you know? Mm. Uh, when I was five, I was thinking like, maybe somebody sent me from the space, you know, and, sure. I, and I have a purpose here to do something, but mm. I don't know what's the purpose. Mm. So then the idea of not-self was like so clear. Yes, my body is changing, my mind is changing, my character is changing, everything is changing. So not-self is the answer. And I liked it so much. And for Gamma, for uh, usually it's known as karma, but in uh, uh, the Pali uh, language, the language which we believe the Buddha spoke, um, it's known as kamma. And I like the idea that. There is a sense behind things, you mm-hmm. know, like why are people poor? Why are people, um, why are people clever? Why are people successful? Why are some no, no, not successful? Our family was not very rich. Like we had food, like we had places to, uh, everything is mm-hmm. fine, but we were not very rich, you mm-hmm. know. Like uh, we had car, but uh, somebody crashed the car, so we didn't have a car, mm-hmm. and right. so on and so on. So we were not like, uh, uh, like fairy tale rich, but mm-hmm. uh, we did have what we needed, and I was thinking like. There are people at school, you know, who have their car and, uh, I mean, whose parents have their car and they have their computer and they play games and they do these things and those things and they can afford this kind of clothes and those that kind of things. And I cannot afford all those things. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, wow, we are not as rich as others, you know, mm-hmm. comparing so I myself. So provided
1: answers for you.
0: And uh, I was thinking like, why? uh, And then uh, later uh, I was thinking like, why are some people more happy, some people not so happy? Why uh, do people die earlier and why do people die later? And uh, this idea of karma made just so much of sense to the world. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that world needs to have sense, as many people suggest. Like, why should world need to have sense? Mm-hmm. But so far, everything else makes sense. Like, hey, this hand is attached to the body. It's not attached to the wall. You know, the eye is in in the eye socket. You know, mm-hmm. it's not on the nose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, other things make sense. So, why shouldn't other things Make sense. Why shouldn't these things make sense? So I like to live in a in a life, you know, which makes sense. It gives me a direction. It gives me a hope.
1: Great. And you would reference that your initial interest in Dhamma and, and practice was developing these psychic powers. Is that still a driving force and motivator for your time in robes now?
0: It certainly is um, is an uh, is a desirable factor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, it's not the only factor. So if I like uh, learned that there is a, a practice which I will practice, and uh, then like tomorrow I will become fully enlightened, but I will have no psychic powers, then I would like it. Then I would go for it. Right. So, uh, but uh, I don't know about that kind of practice. Mm-hmm. I need to work hard to get fully enlightened, and. Uh, it seems that it's the other way. It seems that I first need to get uh, get uh, mastered in the concentration, in order to have uh, the higher levels of enlightenment uh, easier available. So there are four levels of enlightenment: uh, the stream enter, once returner, non returner, and arahant. Arahant is the highest. Now stream enter, once returner need to be. Perfected in their morality, in their ethics. Now, for non-returner, for the third level, it is uh, better to practice jhanas. It is better p- to practice strong concentration because non-returner, as is explained in a very important meditation guidebook known as Visuddhimagga. Visuddhimagga. I need to add this. Uh, explains how monks attained arahanthood at that time. You know, in Which third, time? in the third second first century after christ
1: okay and can you remind the listeners when the buddha lived
0: the buddha lived fifth uh, five centuries before christ and uh, this uh, and we do not have any better guidebook you right. know like this one is so detailed you know it explains this arahant did this 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 so this was a
1: guidebook book. about a meditation guidebook about six to seven centuries after the buddha's life yes like, yes mm-hmm.
0: about arahants you know mm-hmm. about arahants of that time mm. so how did arahants of the first second third century after christ become arahants mm. and the guidebook gives uh, such fantastic detail that it is certainly worth it, you know, like, I would like to be an Arahant of that time, you know. And uh, so I liked it so much uh, that I studied it. And of course, there I learned, of course, there I learned that for the third level of enlightenment, it's really good to have a strong concentration because the third level of enlightenment is characterized by mastery in concentration. The, the fourth level of enlightenment is characterized by mastery of wisdom. So uh, I believe that it is better to practice concentration if we want to attain the higher uh, attainments. Mm,
1: so is that your current practice now, concentration practices?
0: Uh, At the current time, I'm basically maintaining what I have experienced in the past because now I'm dedicating more to others. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching meditation, I'm teaching the Buddha's teachings, uh, sharing what I know in several languages and um, uh, trying to make the Buddha's teachings more accessible to all others so that they are inspired on their path toward meditation, toward Mm -hmm. enlightenment.
1: Right, right. So it's not uncommon for many Westerners to develop some kind of passing interest in Buddhism or meditation, but you've actually gone far beyond this. You've structured your whole life around it. So I'm wondering, what was the turning point that made you want to commit to this level of dedication?
0: The first point, yeah, one uh, very important point was the Buddha simile about the one-eyed tortoise. So the Buddha teaches that there is, uh, that there is, uh, that uh, like as a simile, he he such as like monks, suppose that uh, there would be a one-eyed tortoise at the bottom of the ocean and there would be a yoke, uh, you know, like the thing that you apply on oxen mm-hmm. when you're going to plough. So there would be a yoke thrown over the water and the yoke would be floating uh, on the surface of the ocean and there's the wind from the north, south, east, west and uh, the one-eyed tortoise would uh, would come up uh, once every hundred years. Mm. So how often will it happen that this one-eyed tortoise will stick its head through the yoke? And uh, considering how uh, impossible that is, uh, um, the Buddha then suggests, and even rarer it is, to be born as a human mm-hmm. to get this opportunity to attain enlightenment. And I thought, aha, so I'd better do something. Mm-hmm.
1: So that simile was instrumental in your decision for to take on the, the role and the dedication that you have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. I see Um, the vocation of being a monastic. It's little understood, uh, little practiced in contemporary Western society. So I'm wondering if you can recall the first time that you even heard about the concept of ordination.
0: Yes, that was when I was 12. When I was 12, I watched the uh, the movie The 36th Chamber. Mm -hmm. It's a Shaolin movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time I didn't know anything about Buddhism, I just saw there a monk fighting, you know, that was all. And uh, uh, the 36th uh, chamber, at that time when I saw it as a 12-year-old boy, um, uh, I could maybe understand maybe like 20% of it because it's, it's very deep. Um, for me, I believe that uh, there is a deeper sense in it rather than just uh, a boy from a village who's going to protect his family and but what i saw there my perception as a 12 years old boy uh, was that uh, there is a monk and he is peaceful that he is protecting others and he is peaceful even though he is attacked by bad people and uh, i was so inspired by that mm-hmm. and when i was 12 i remember that the thought came to me i also want to be a monk like that mm-hmm. and i just totally gave up I just like totally threw it away like now is not the time Mm -hmm. finished and I didn't think about it Mm -hmm. then uh just recently like several years ago when I was like thinking when when did this all started I realized hey yeah actually when I was 12 I saw this movie a Hollywood (laughs) movie
1: or a Chinese movie it's a Chinese movie right yeah so that was your first impetus on the path so you can think the director and writer of of that film (laughs) Yeah. And then, and so then you saw this movie, when did you, uh, I, so I understand in seeing the movie, you were inspired by the character and the storyline. Um, when I was a kid, I was inspired by Luke Skywalker and I wanted to be a Jedi, I think like a lot of nice. other people. But um, but then you have those kind of childhood, you know, fantasies or inspiration and then time moves on. So this obviously had an impact on you, but then when did you first really seriously contemplate the possibility that renunciation and ordination was possible.
0: Immediately as I read uh, the book uh, about white magic, uh, it's actually, I think it's called... uh uh, White Magic, but I don't remember. It's a it's a very deep book. You shouldn't think of a child book, no, no, absolutely. It's a very deep uh, book. It has like 300 pages, and I couldn't understand from it almost anything at all. So I was just reading it in order to have it read.
1: It's fiction or nonfiction?
0: No, it is, um, it is an, um, it's a, a book, I suppose, written by a follower of New Age. Uh, of New Age movement, uh, which is a combination of Buddhism with other traditions. And uh, there uh, was the mention that the Buddhist monks uh, have these psychic powers. And just as I read it, I knew I will be a Buddhist monk. Hmm. And uh, How old were you at the time? 15. Hmm. And uh, then... Uh, Immediately, as I finished reading of the book, I decided to be a vegetarian. You know, it's mm. like the first step on becoming a Buddhist monk, mm. and uh, I or was vegetarian since then until today.
1: Until today, did, did you eat meat today?
0: I was vegetarian. I have sorry, I have been <laughs> okay. vegetarian. It's difficult English. Oh, I it's okay. Been, <laughs> I have been vegetarian since that day until today. Right. Okay. So I never ate any meat right, or right, fish right. until I didn't
1: know if you had some morning surprise <laughs> meat dish, but oh, you didn't right, know so. it. Um, no, so you mean you've you've been um, you you've been vegetarian that day forward
0: yes for seventeen years now
1: right 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 and are most Buddhist monks vegetarian?
0: not most but many mm. many Theravada Buddhist monks are vegetarians
1: mm. in Myanmar also
0: in Myanmar also not again not most but many so there would be like. I believe like ten thousands of tens of thousands of monks would be vegetarians for sure.
1: Right. And what do you think is the relationship with being vegetarian and uh, on a spiritual path or wearing robes? Uh,
0: so uh, being a vegetarian is uh, a kind of letting go. It's part of letting go. So uh, letting go of meat or fish is really, um, is really helpful. I don't say that it's essential, but it is certainly is helpful on the path. We need to let go a lot and a Why? lot of things.
1: Why is it helpful?
0: Um, because uh, because it is possible to let go of it without, you know, like, dying. <laughs> and uh, if we can let go, the more we can let go, the, be- the better, you know. So, of course, we can let go of everything, you know, like, and then just live on water and bread, but uh, we gradually learn to let go more and more. And letting go of meat and fish is helpful uh, because there is a kind of lightness, you know, in the... Or that is my feeling, that letting go of meat and fish is a little bit um, lighter. Also because um, we know those who don't eat meat or fish uh, certainly have uh, that understanding that the less people will eat meat and fish, the less uh, animals and yes. fish will be killed. Right. So uh, with uh, that addition to this lightness and to this letting go and to this health, which I gained through mm-hmm. being vegetarian, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, is, uh, it is really helpful. Uh, I would like to n- note here that uh, the greatest, uh, the top um, master in Myanmar, uh, in the education uh, in the monastic education uh, field, uh, who has memorized 40, uh, sorry, 20 books of Tipitaka. Tipitaka has 40, he has memorized 20. And that's itself known like as if he memorized all because that's the most important part. And he uh, also is a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And when people ask him, why are you a vegetarian? He says, for health. And who is this? Yossi Adha. Yossi
1: right? Mm -hmm.
0: So Josie has become a vegetarian, and when people ask him, so why did you become a vegetarian, and he says, no, this is not because of Vinaya or because of the Buddha's teachings, it's because of health. And uh, I heard that many of the health problems that Josie had when he ate meat and fish disappeared uh, short after he became a vegetarian. Mm
1: -hmm. And what do you find are Burmese attitudes towards vegetarianism? Diverse. Okay.
0: Yeah, people think all kinds of things in Myanmar. the the shock from the cultural shock from the West is making uh, such a great diversity in in the Asian mind. They have this culture and they have the Western culture, and now uh, how to how to reply on it? You know, like the culture in Myanmar is just believe everything what the say or what the teacher says, and don't say a word because if you don't like it, it means you didn't understand it. And uh, now the Western uh, culture says, no, it's the other way. You need to ask because if you uh, if you don't ask, if you don't understand it, then it means you, right. need, uh, you need to get more help from the teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's a totally different attitude and uh, the Burmese people are very confused about that.
1: Right, interesting. Um, so getting back to your path on the robes and as a monastic, uh, when you were 15 was when you said you you read this book and you knew that you absolutely wanted to be a Buddhist monk. So when did it happen and how did it happen from there?
0: Yeah, it happened uh, in uh, during one evening as I was sitting on a chair in front of a computer. I had this book and I didn't read it from a computer. I, I read it from a book. And then I finished the book and I thought, yes, this is what I want. You know, I want to be a monk. I want to get the psychic powers. From now on, I'm a vegetarian. So I think I went to the kitchen and I told my granny. I stayed with my granny and my uh, father. And I said, so now I'm I'm a vegetarian. I'm not going to eat any meat or fish. And, um, and then uh, my father agreed. My father was very happy about it. My granny disagreed. She didn't hmm. like it at all. And uh, so anyway, uh, gradually uh, I uh, proved that I'm serious. (laughs) And uh, then uh, from then on, I read more and more books about Buddhism and also books about magic. I still wanted to know more and understand more, especially what's truth. You know, like uh, many people fake, uh, many people are fake. You know, they say that they do magic, but they don't. Like there are people who are doing this parlor, uh, parlor magic. But uh, I'm now talking about those like real fake, like they fake it in such a way that you really believe it. And that's what they intend mm, that you sure, believe. It. Sure, right. And uh, unfortunately, we find that even in, uh, in Asia, even in serious, uh, serious places uh, like monasteries and other places. And that is very, uh, very distressing. So for me, if I have to dedicate all my life to something, then of course I don't want to dedicate myself to something fake or to something untrue. So I wanted to study more and more and understand what is behind magic. And then the science, you know, is another pressure, you know, like science says this, science says that. Now magic says this, magic says that. Science says you cannot make rain. Magic says, yes, you can make rain. Science says uh, you cannot levitate. uh, Magic says you can. So how to how to reconcile this so this is such an interesting topic for me and i'm always open to learn more and Mm -hmm. to to investigate more until now i don't know how to levitate or how to disappear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh, until now even though i already have memorized the, the techniques i have learned the techniques how to achieve these things and how do they happen and how how exactly this is practiced uh still um uh, I am open for more answers and for more explanations.
1: Right. So you mentioned at the age of 15, becoming resolute, you wanted to become a vegetarian and be on a Buddhist path. As you said that, I couldn't help but laugh because I'm a vegetarian as well. And I remember my difficulties in Czech Republic. I'm sure it's easier when you know the language and culture. I didn't really know either. And I ended up with you know 15 different types of potato dishes every day. So, But I'm sure that, uh, that when you know your way around, you can get a, a well-balanced vegetarian meal. But I'm also curious, when you said this to your parents, you know, kids get a lot of ideas of what they want to do and what they want to be. And, you know, around that age, it's not uncommon for a kid to go to the parent and say, I've decided I now want to do this or I now want to be this. And, you know, the parent or grandparent might lovingly say, oh, OK, dear, you know, go go ahead. Good luck to you. And we'll, we'll see how you feel next week or next month. Um, in this case, um, this resolution that you had when you were 15 informed your whole life in front of you. And I'm wondering about your parents' reaction, how they, if you know anything about how they took it at the time, how much they, they believed in a 15-year-old's uh, assertion of, of this life vision that was so unusual and how their, their attitude changed through your process.
0: I was fortunate for parents who, who were open, uh, especially from my dad who who encouraged me on this path, hmm. he saw this as, as like um, an additional parenting, you know, that I will basically learn to be a good person, not just from my dad, but also from the books. Mm. And uh, my dad uh, had this great wish, you know, that Mm. I would be a good person. And uh, he tried to, like, show me the right path. And I'm very thankful to my dad for so so many things that uh, he taught me and how he led me and uh, Mm. how he was always careful. The other people around him and me, of course, were criticizing his style because he was very very strict Mm. for everything. Just talking, just saying a sentence. Oh no, you shouldn't say the sentence like this. Mm -hmm. You know, you should use different word and (laughs) different sound or whatever. And so my dad was very, very strict. But at that time, although it was a lot of suffering, now thanks to his help, I believe that I can express myself better and and other people uh, can resonate more with that, what I try to share with them. And uh, so, um, Thanks to my dad's intentions, I was uh, able to uh, to uh, experience uh, a lot of uh, success and uh, a lot of progress in on the path to be a good person, and uh, I uh, studied uh, a lot about ethics and about uh, about being a good person, and ethically living person, from books. And my dad always supported in me, uh, supported me with this. The uh, one important factor here is that my dad, when he was somewhere around my age, also practiced magic Mm. not buddhist magic at all Mm -hmm. not buddhist magic at all my dad practiced more of a kind of um, mind work. Uh, I don't. My dad never shared with me exactly what he did, but he told me that he had apparently there was a group of uh, friends, and they would like learn how to use the mind to do things beyond physics, like metaphysics. And uh, my dad uh, said that he went all the way to to the sta- stage when he could uh, know what will happen next three minutes without knowing it without anybody telling him and uh, he also told me that he had a very important state uh, where he was able to like uh, purify himself from all his deeds in the past something like um, the moment before you die Uh, some people when before they die uh, they can see all of their deeds in the past and they can like learn what was wrong what was right it's a kind of like judgment Preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we take it a little bit from the Christian uh, Christian view, and uh, so my dad believes that he that this uh, was like his enlightenment, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. He when I started to speak to him about Buddhism, he wasn't able to like resonate with it with it. He was able to agree, but mm-hmm. he said, "But I never read anything like this in the books." Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad is uh, is uh, could you would you say adamant you know mm-hmm. that he really loves philosophy right. so when he saw me studying philosophy when he saw me studying Buddhism when we when he saw me meditating he he was so happy what he was not happy was my strictness mm-hmm. but maybe that's what I learned from him actually mm-hmm. uh, that I would like meditate okay meditating 30 minutes and nobody will disturb me so whatever he would do or whatever anybody would do i would not move until the mm-hmm. time was up mm-hmm. so that was one thing he he little bit feared about that mm. i'm too strict about the rules. otherwise uh, he appreciated all what i did right. so i had full-out support
1: right so when you were 15 years old you stated your life intention living in the czech republic was that you now want to be a buddhist monk uh where did you go from there how did you figure out what to do next
0: I didn't. I was there like a blind man, you know, knowing what, knowing nothing. So I didn't have any friend. I was quite desperate. For three years, I didn't have any Buddhist friend. Then when I was 18, I searched online. I thought, like, now I need to go to monastery. Like, this has been enough, you know. Mm. Like, of course, before the leaving school examination. And uh, so, I thought, like, I need to get rid of all this school, you know, I don't want to uh, sit for examination, I don't want to learn anything. So, uh, so um, then I uh, searched online and I found about... I found out about this Zen Zen monastery, Zen Buddhist monastery in Czech Republic, and I thought, yes, this is the place to go. So I sent to them an email that I'd like to go there and be a monk there. And uh, somehow they sensed that I am not so much enthusiastic about Zen. And um, they found out that I like more Theravada. So then they say, well, no, in in this case, please do not come to our monastery. We know a Theravada monk in Sri Lanka, and he certainly can help you. So they forwarded my email to him. And then he said, well, you need first to finish your school, and then we can discuss about this. Mm. So I said, aha, okay. And then he sent to me uh, the... Uh, the contact to his 10 students who were already in Czech Republic hmm. as lay people, as mm-hmm. t- in teaching meditation. And then uh, uh, they then responded to me that I can visit them and discuss with them about dhamma. And f- uh, then they taught me how to meditate and we discussed long, long uh, about about uh, whatever is the monk life and uh, Buddhism and whatever were my questions, they answered them very well. And and they are actually teachers in meditation retreats in Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. So thanks to them, I learned about meditation retreats in Czech Republic. And then I attended the meditation retreats and there I got more and more Buddhist friends. And from there, I learned about Sri Lanka, about Myanmar. At that time, Myanmar still had uh, some conflicts. So I decided for Sri Lanka. And that's uh, that was uh, the main, that was the core of my progress on the path. Because if uh, if the Zen monastery said, "Okay, you want to be a monk, welcome here," then maybe I would be a Zen monk now.
1: Right. Yeah. It's funny where life takes us. Yeah. So you finished your schooling in Czech Republic, and then from there you went to Sri Lanka. Uh,
0: I finished uh, studying at uh, at the Catholic high school, and. I met with a beautiful girl, and I fell fell in love with that beautiful girl, and uh, we made plans for life as, mm. <laughs> as usually. So that it disrupted
1: goes. your spiritual plans at that point.
0: So n- I'm not sure whether it disrupted. It certainly, uh, I, I can't even say it enhanced mm-hmm. uh, the spiritual life if I look at it now, backward. Uh, so with her. Uh, we moved to a different place and we had our apartment, which I rented. I ha- I was extremely successful in business. I sold uh, cable TV, um, co- uh, how to say that, cable TV connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a house-to-house contract, uh, contract how to say that, agent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was immensely successful and I got a huge amount of money for working just a little bit every day. That was after I finished uh, at the school. So I, uh, after I left Catholic high school, I immediately started studying English at the Business English course, uh, which was my dad's wish. Before I started studying at the Business English school, mm-hmm. Business English course, it's a one year course, My da- my dad, Uh, spoke with me about this, my idea about becoming a monk. And I said, well, uh, so I'm now going to finish this school and I want to become a monk. And he says, well, please stay one year more. Stay one year more when you are here, when you study a school, I get more money from the government Mm. so I can pay a debt for an apartment. And then when I pay a debt for a a new apartment, we can sell the old apartment Mm -hmm. and then I will give you... Uh, enough money for everything you need, mm. and then if you still want to become a monk, you can. Okay. So we had like an agreement with my dad. Mm. I totally forgot it, you know, uh-huh. after like six months. But uh-huh. anyway, uh, we had this agreement, and my dad actually fulfilled the agreement, you know, mm. even though we forgot it, forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, after uh, that one year uh, at the business English school, uh, I um, uh, I had uh, this uh, uh, this. Uh, how to say that, this great uh, income from, uh, from, my, uh, from the business at the uh, UPC, UPC company. It's a European cable TV company. And uh, with that uh, money, I thought, okay, so now I have a girlfriend. But even with a girlfriend, I'll get married. And when I'm married, I will work hard. I will take care of my wife. I will take care of my child or children. And then I will work hard and hard, and I will try to make them happy, and then I will die. <laughs> and uh, then uh, the idea came to me: like now, if I become a monk, then I will work hard and hard, and I may get the psychic powers, and I may get, a, and I may attain the ultimate bliss of nibbana. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, then the second uh, option is better. Mm. So uh, I thought, like, okay, so maybe. Uh, maybe uh, I should become a monk but I didn't know how to do it because mm-hmm. my girlfriend loved me you know and we had a very nice relationship mm-hmm. and I had so much money and uh, my mm-hmm. my dad loved her and uh, her mom loved me you mm-hmm. know I'm mean, like we had very good relationships mm-hmm. everything was just perfect mm-hmm. like a dream life and uh, then I thought so how am I going to do it I need to ask gods for help so uh, as I was in a block of flats, you know, uh, outside the the flats, somewhere, you know, in the in the corridor, I uh, I thought, okay, gods, I want to become a monk. Help me, but may nobody suffer any physical uh, suffering because of this uh, my decision or because of your help. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any anybody. I never spoke with gods they never spoke with me. I don't know whether uh, w- whether they are around me or somewhere else. I never saw them you know apart from pictures and uh, I uh, never had a direct contact with gods. but I thought well why not like I will ask them for help and in the worst case they will not help me you know so so then uh, then after maybe a month, uh, we we are still like gradually uh, getting things for our apartment, like buying new beds, buying new uh, new furniture and so on. And uh, we also ordered a beautiful bed from a company, but somehow we forgot about it. And uh, before it would come, we ordered um, uh, an air air bed. Mm-hmm. Do you call it air bed? Mm-hmm. You know, like you, yeah. you blow air into it and yeah. then you... Air mattress. It. Air yeah. mattress. And that is very cheap, you know, and it's very nice. And so we were sleeping on that, and uh, one night it happened that it ruptured, hmm. and when it ruptured, uh, uh, my girlfriend was not happy, hmm. <laughs> and she was not happy, and then I was not happy that she's not happy, and we had a conflict, mm-hmm. and then because of that conflict, uh, because of that conflict, uh, it uh, uh, resulted uh, that she left to her uh, to her mother's place, and. I uh, sent her a message uh, that if uh, if that uh, she can come back and take her things away. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yes, this is my time. Mm. <laughs> so I immediately called my friend who has a land in Sri Lanka and I said, hey, I want to go to Sri Lanka. I'm mm-hmm. following with you, you know, uh, d- this December, you know, like, let's go together. And mm-hmm. when do you go exactly? And help me to get the flight ticket. And I started to arrange everything. Mm-hmm. And then I got the answer from my girlfriend. I don't want to leave you. I love you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I had like the fl- the travel was arranged mm-hmm. and the girlfriend was there. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I like secretly continued arranging the trip mm-hmm. as I was with a uh, with girlfriend. But I had my excuse, you know. And uh, then after like a month, uh, she overheard uh, my talking with, uh, with my friend. And she was uh, literally stupefied. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, no, you must be joking. Like, what are you going I'm to sure, do? Yeah. And I told her, okay, so I will go to Sri Lanka for three months. And if I don't like it there during the three months, I will come back to you. Mm-hmm. And if I like it there, I will not come back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because... Obviously, I cannot know. Like, how do I know whether I can like resist the the Asian weather? And Sri Lanka is really hot. Right. Uh, how do I know whether I get a virus there, or or a sickness, or a problem, mm. or a social problem? I don't know. I don't know anything. So I wanted to like let it open. You know, like ready to come back. And uh, so she also like was um, okay that maybe I may come back. So it was easier for her to like survive that. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the next three months, during the, it was three months to get ready and three months uh, as like the testing period. So during the three months of getting ready, I closed up everything, all our insurances and everything, whatever was the payment for electricity and other things. I uh, like changed it to her and paid everything for the next three months, including the, um, the rent and everything so that she can for three months, she doesn't need any money and she has everything that she needs and i gave her everything you know like we bought new fridge and new new whatever microwave whatever we bought everything was her mm. everything was for her and even before i left i still bought her new things and whatever she needed and because again, I had a lot of money and my dad supported me with another uh, large amount of money mm. for the travel. Right. So uh, then I left to Sri Lanka and as soon as I came there, I knew that I'm not coming back. Mm. And uh, so I sent her email. Yeah. We kept a little bit in contact for the first three months. Mm-hmm. After three months, she knew for sure that I'm not coming right. back. She found a new boyfriend. Oh. I think now she's happily married. Uh-huh. And uh, then I continued in Sri Lanka. So that's how my dad, now back to your question, my dad actually had a problem with me becoming a monk. He didn't wish that. Hmm. When I was going to go to Sri Lanka, when I needed just the last permission from my dad to become a monk, because if you want to become a monk, you need permission from your parents uh i told my dad da- uh, dad i need your permission otherwise i cannot become a monk mm-hmm. and he says uh but you first need to study at a university and i mm. say well i can study university in sri lanka as a monk mm. he says well i can pay for you cambridge or oxford we have enough money for that mm-hmm. and i say well but i cannot study there as a monk without touching money it's mm. easier to right. study in sri lanka right. And he says, "Well, so do you want me to allow you to jump from a bridge?" Mm-hmm. And I say, "Yes, please allow me to jump from a bridge." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, uh, then uh, he says, "Well, uh, then what to do?" So I, uh, I said, "I need to get your written permission." Mm-hmm. So how should I write it? And my father dictated to me, you know, what to write in uh, in the note. Mm-hmm. So I have the note with me until today mm-hmm. and uh, there is written like, I allow my son to uh, to work hard on his path to become a good person. Mm. That was what he dictated and then I added, which means to become a Buddhist right. monk <laughs> for undetermined period. Uh, and then my dad subscribed, uh, like a
1: Right, right. And that's how you got to Sri Lanka. So then did you ordain in Sri Lanka?
0: Uh, i ordained as a novice uh-huh. now to ordain you can uh ordain as a novice you can get higher ordination um, in um in most cases uh, the the adept first ordains as a novice as a like a trial period uh, where the novice follows just 10 precepts uh, most importantly doesn't eat afternoon doesn't enjoy um, multimedia entertainment uh, doesn't Uh, touch money it's more complicated but this is uh, most prominent most let's say most difficult out of it and uh and of course doesn't engage in any sexual intercourse in any in any sexual um, activity and then uh after a certain period according to the teacher's decision the uh the novice can uh obtain the higher ordination Mm -hmm. and when i was in sri lanka i was ordained as a novice and I stayed there as a novice for four years. I could get higher ordination much earlier, but when I learned about Myanmar, I thought I need to get higher ordination in Myanmar so that I have more freedom to travel and to speak with monks as like the Burmese monk, because I was ordained there.
1: Mm. So you were a novice for your four years in Sri Lanka and then full bhikkhu when you came to Myanmar. And what I, I didn't quite understand um your your point and why you didn't want to seek full ordination in Sri Lanka. Why why did you want to wait to Myanmar to do that?
0: Yes. In Sri Lanka, the the idea of higher ordination is more of a reward rather than of a duty. Mm-hmm. In, in Myanmar, it's the other way. In mm-hmm. Myanmar, if you're over 20, you need to get higher ordination. Right. right. So uh, in Sri Lanka, you're basically tested. Mm-hmm. The novicehood is more of a test period. Mm-hmm. But the problem here is that I was one year, uh, as a novice, only around six months uh, with uh, my master, and this was not a sufficient period for mm-hmm. him to decide. In Sri Lanka, usually you wait one year or two years or even longer to become to get the permission uh, or to get the ordination. Mm-hmm. So after six months, uh, according to my promise to my dad, I went to the university. And as I studied at the university, I was somewhere else so not with my teacher, hence my teacher could not test me. So all of this idea that he could give me higher ordination is invalid because I'm not with him, he cannot Mm -hmm. test me. So I was somewhere else, and all the monks that I met in the university area were not uh, monks who I would desire to be my preceptors for life. So uh, then, uh, even though I was suggested that I get higher ordination from from elder monks at that time i learned that there is myanmar and that there might be fully enlightened monks in myanmar in asia when uh, or let's say for sri lanka myanmar where i'm sure in sri lanka and in myanmar when you get ordained you basically become somewhat they're national. You, mm-hmm. s- you basically become part of them mm-hmm. because uh, even in our scriptures is suggested that the monk who ordains you, uh, your preceptor, is like your father, mm-hmm. and uh, or or, ba- or let's say like your mother, and the other monk who instructs you other things, whatever it would be, the secondary teachers would be like your fathers. Mm-hmm. So you have like your mother and father, your parents in the in the monastic family, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so in that uh, perspective, we can say that the monk is born, that the monk is born into a new it takes life. takes on the national identity there. Um, that would be the added, added, mm. uh, added feature, that if uh, there are Sri-, Sri Lankan monks who are ordaining me, then I would be somewhat Sri Lankan. Mm-hmm. If uh, Burmese ordained me, then I'm somewhat Burmese. Sure. Yeah. So like I ordained as a novice in Sri Lanka, so I'm somewhat Sri Lankan. Then I got higher ordination in Myanmar, so I'm somewhat Burmese. Mm. Uh, and I thought this is great, because if I can wait until I go to Myanmar and get ordained in Myanmar, then I will have more freedom because they will take me as their monk, as the Burmese monk.
1: Mm -hmm. And why did you decide that you wanted to come to Myanmar and be a monk at all? Why not stay in Sri Lanka after the university and just continue on as a bhikkhu there?
0: In Sri Lanka, I didn't find a monk who I would totally trust. Mm -hmm. This, again, is dependent on my perception, Mm -hmm. of course. And uh, I felt that in Myanmar, I will find such monk. And I did, I did find so many, uh, so many uh, exquisite uh, persons in Myanmar, not just monks, but also nuns Mm. and lay people. And uh, so um, I came to Myanmar. I met those people. I was ordained. I was ordained very soon after I came to Myanmar. You came
1: as a novice or as a lay person?
0: I came as a novice and Mm. I ordained, I got the higher ordination right from the novice, novice Mm. stage.
1: Mm -hmm. And you seem to really have a knack with languages. You put together dictionaries with Sinhalese and Burmese. You, I think you became fluent in Sinhalese there. Yes, you referenced right. one time giving a talk to that was televised to 10 million people, is that correct? 10 million. Yeah, and then in, in Myanmar, you've also learned fluent Burmese and you give discourses and meditation instructions to local.
0: I stayed with Burmese monks in the Sinhalese monastery mm-hmm. when I still learned Burmese when I was still in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm and uh, they helped me if I didn't know something. I was not a type who would follow a course uh, with one teacher, but if I had a question, I would go and ask. Right. And so they helped me to, to understand pronunciation, again, because I didn't have uh, a teacher, you know, who would mm-hmm. teach me Burmese. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. It was uh, so distressing sometimes because I would learn a word with a pronunciation and I would then repeat it for myself, let's say 10,000 times or Mm -hmm. 1,000 times. And then when I came to Myanmar, nobody would understand uh, and with difficulties i would find out that throughout the time i pronounced it wrong i see so this happened for so many words oh. so this is a big disadvantage learning without a teacher or without a proper pronunciation you know learning sure. method yeah so uh, i already uh, learned uh, burmese when i was in sri lanka to a good extent uh, i went through the seaside edu uh, Course. I went through a Burmese by ear, John Ockels course. I went through... Um uh, a software, I don't remember how, I don't remember exactly how it's known how it's called uh, but it's uh, it's like 105 small less short lessons each lesson teaches you like 6 new sentences 6 mm-hmm. new words mm-hmm. so that I went through and then I created a Facebook account, my first official, my first real Facebook account mm-hmm. until that time I never had a Facebook account, mm-hmm. only one secret so I can use script.com oh. <laughs> right. so uh, my uh, first official Facebook account was opened so that I make Burmese friends and Mm -hmm. speak with them in Burmese.
1: Uh And uh, that worked incredibly. This was right when the technological revolution was coming to Myanmar because this had been a closed country for a long time. Wi-Fi, internet, smartphones, none of that was here until just recently. So... I guess your um, um, your making your own account on Facebook coincided with actually Facebook coming to Myanmar in mass to everyone at the same time.
0: I see. It could be like two thousand eleven when I made the the account.
1: Right, you're actually probably ahead of the curve then.
0: So then there, I immediately got many many Burmese friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, with them, I would you know by messenger. I would talk with them about uh, about Burmese. You know, hello, how do you do? Mm. And my system is through diary. In the beginning, I would make a diary in that foreign language. So I try to make like a diary first. I start like uh, I woke up at this time. Then I went to sleep at this time. So is this right? Then they would correct the mistakes. I would write it again for the next day. Mm-hmm. And then if it is correct, I go a little bit more mm-hmm. exact. Mm-hmm. I woke up at this time, I had meal at this time, I went to sleep at this time. And then a little bit more and more exact until I like explain and make stories, You know, mm-hmm. like what exactly happened, with whom did I talk, and what did I talk about, and what was the problem, what did I resolve. So getting steadily more complicated in your, your yeah. expressions, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this way I learned Sinhalese, this way I learned Burmese. And then when uh, when I see that the diary is, uh, like starts to have less and less mistakes, then I switched to books. So then I would like start to read books. In mm-hmm. Facebook, I would still not go to books. I was reading the posts. So the Burmese posts. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's really good to learn uh, a language from Facebook because yeah. the people are open and the language is so rich. You get there the written, the spoken, the vulgar, the the <laughs> official, the ethical, you know, the teaching, everything is there. Every part so, of it, yeah. So uh, learning language from Facebook for me was was so good because I could like really learn real Burmese.
1: Right, and it was probably also helpful because with Burmese specifically, there's quite a difference between normal written Burmese and normal spoken Burmese. There's a much greater difference than other languages. In other words, you can't pick up a normal book or newspaper and read that to understand how people speak in the world because actually there's completely different grammatical structures that are only written and not spoken. But with something like Facebook, Posts probably follow uh, there are books that that follow an oral um, the, the the oral spoken form, but they're, they're few and not many. Newspapers tend to not. But Facebook posts, I would imagine, in Burmese tend to follow much more the spoken because it's a casual form. So that was a kind of a rare technological advance that allowed you to learn that part of the language. And so that's an interesting way to develop, you know, using Facebook and diaries to just express yourself a little more, a little more, a little more because it has to be said now, you write, uh, you have an email newsletter, you you answer questions on Facebook as well. People ask you, I've seen many of these, they ask you anything. They ask you something about um, some part of the Visuddhimagga or the Buddhist scriptures or a meditation question or something happening in contemporary Myanmar that they want to know about or some recent, you know, historical incident or 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 anything, and you you give these comprehensive, you know, these are all in Myanmar language of the, the question and the answers, which you're writing yourself, and you give these comprehensive answers to whatever it is they ask. And then you've started doing Dhamma discourses as well. Um some of these Dhamma discourses are, you know, the 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 number of times they're shared, they're liked, they're commented on. You're looking at hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of three times million, three millions. Three millions. Yep. So so you're looking at millions of times. So you've gone in a very short time from just learning how to express yourself by saying, "Well, I got up at nine o'clock, and I, uh, and then I will eat breakfast." Oh, no, no, no! Then you ate breakfast. Ah, okay, right. Then I ate breakfast, and just just getting that level of of sophistication and meaning to suddenly giving. A, a formal Dhamma discourse at the um, you know w- with a topic that you really have to, to, to have a solid understanding of, both in terms of the content as well as in terms of how you're expressing it. This is very um, these are the highest stakes really that, that you can have in terms of being correct in your language and usage. And uh, and now these are your you're becoming um, something of a celebrity here with your um, the number of times it's being viewed and shared. So that's a, that's a very short yeah. jump.
0: Yeah, I go on a road, you know, I go somewhere and people stop me and say,
1: "Yeah, I know you from Facebook. Yes. I listen to your <laughs> Tama."
0: Right. You know, right? We we are visiting the prime minister now because we are building a new monastery of Myanmar. Yeah, prime yeah. minister, not the prime minister of Myanmar. Prime minister of the Yangon uh, Yangon division mm-hmm. uh, in Myanmar. Each division has a prime minister. Um, would be a counselor, not mm. a prime minister mm. uh, but, uh, uh, per se. Mm. And uh, so we visited a prime min- the prime minister for Yangon division and uh, uh, we were waiting until he comes, and his office workers, you know, were coming to see me, and one by one came and said, "Yeah, I know you. I right. know you from Facebook. Yeah, I'm listening to your Dhamma. Yeah, I know you from internet. You know,
1: like people were coming, and uh, yeah, Facebook fa- and and here in Myanmar, Facebook has become such the means of communication more than anything else. So once once you tap into uh a, a communication or or a messaging on facebook then that is the way to definitely definitely take off whether you're <laughs> starting a new business or giving a dhamma discourse so that's that's the medium now yeah um, i
0: i wouldn't like uh, the audience to think like that i want to become famous sure, sure. Uh, my intention is to share dhamma with those who are interested in it mm-hmm. and if the people are interested and they want to listen to me then uh, I don't see a reason why should I stop them. What is uh interesting factor here that the more people know you, the more carefully you need to be of about course. everything yeah. you say yeah. and do. Mm-hmm.
1: Have you had have you had issues where that's come up or you've realized that you haven't been as careful as you should have been? You didn't quite realize the stature and the reach that your words had uh, at this point?
0: Uh, there was one case, and uh, it it is uh, slightly distressing that one time you're not exact, you know, and that is the time which makes you really famous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, a great master in Myanmar, my uh, most, uh, the master who I appreciated most for for his uh, knowledge uh, of the of the books. He taught me uh, that monks who touch money are not monks. That that was his words. And who is this? In Burmese. Uh, uh, he doesn't wish, okay. after this problem, he doesn't okay. wish okay. his name to be ever uh, mentioned by Sure, me.
1: so some anonymous monk who taught uh, you? Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, he, uh, and uh, so he told this to me, and I thought, like, this is great. Like, this is the way how I need to. Explain everybody that monks shouldn't touch monks. Uh, monks shouldn't touch money. I, I think
1: actually, before going into the story, probably you should give some background to people who might not know about monasticism or the Buddha's teachings. So, if you could back up just a few steps, maybe discuss uh, what the Buddha had to say about monks touching money and what the contemporary reality here in Myanmar is before getting into your recent news about it.
0: Yeah, in uh, in the Buddha's teachings, uh, monks should not touch money. The Buddha uh the buddha when he learned that a monk touched money he uh, he admonished him that that he's a useless that he's a useless person so we know from the Buddha's teachings that really monks are not supposed to touch money right. and they, they are not supposed to buy things with money. They're not supposed to own anything that they bought with their money. And uh, monks should follow their rules. If monks break their rules and they do not confess, they do not purify themselves through confessing it to another monk. If they do not purify themselves before death, then the belief is that they will not be able to uh, to be born as a uh, as a being in a pleasurable state or even to attain uh, enlightenment and uh, that is uh, that is a very serious problem so uh, my idea uh, is that monks if they shouldn't touch money and if this is such a serious thing uh, they should stop and uh, every monk should help every monk to follow the rules sure so j-
1: just to back up a moment so then the the Buddha had an injunction that, Monastics in his order should not touch money or gold or jewels, things of value in this sense. For people who've never been to Myanmar, how is that rule interpreted or followed in present-day Myanmar?
0: It's interpreted in the same way. It's just that the monks say, we cannot follow it, and they just don't follow it. Mm -hmm. But they will say, yes, we should not touch money, but we cannot follow it. It's not possible to live without
1: it. So most monks in Myanmar today do touch money in your estimation?
0: Uh, yes, I could say uh, my estimation is 98%, uh, uh, but it seems officially estimation is 80%.
1: So somewhere between 80 and 98%, I've heard 99.9%, <laughs> <99. sure>. <laughs> so <laughs> somewhere upwards of 80% of monks in Myanmar are touching money.
0: Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, the problem is not just touching money. The problem is as soon as you touch money and you buy something with the money, which is what is expected from you, uh, from a monk if he touches money. That's what money is for. Right? That's why they why they are given to the monk. Uh, then all of that is also inappropriate. So using that every moment using it is another offense, and that needs to be uh, confessed. And no other monk is allowed to use it. So like if a monk touches money and he buys a land, he. Buys buys a building, then all that building and all that land is inaccessible to every other monk who follows rules. Right, And uh, the Myanmar country is basically saturated by that kind of monastery. So that
1: would put a monk who very much wanted to follow the rule of not touching money, even if he was living that very ethical life, if he, by no fault of his own, were to accept food or visit monastery land, spend the night that was acquired by another monk, right, then he it's would, an offense, yeah, it's, it's, it's an just offense. an offense. Right,
0: right. Yeah, and that basically destroys, you know, the purity of the Buddhas, uh, Buddhas community. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a very, very serious issue. Okay. And the monks who touch money, they do not realize how serious it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started to, uh, like, teach about uh, that monks should not touch money, that lay people should not give mo- money to monks. Monks can have a steward and uh, a lay person can accept money for monks. Uh, and then if a monk needs something, then he asks the steward what he needs. Mm-hmm. So you could say, isn't that the same thing as accepting money? Well, it's not in terms of enjoying sensual pleasures. Mm-hmm. So if a steward is the one who touches, uh, who accepts the money, then of course a monk will not go to the steward and say, hey, buy me, you know. Uh, a bottle of whiskey you know mm-hmm. because the steward will not do that mm-hmm. uh, or the monk will be shy to ask for it or uh, the monk will not go to a steward and say hey can you organize for me a prostitute for tonight you know so but if the monk is uh, having the money himself then there's nothing to stop it.
1: well those those are to kind of push back against that those are kind of extreme examples what about what, what would be the difference of a monk saying well i have this money and I, um, I need to get a drink because I'm hot or it's raining, I need to buy an umbrella. So because I'm holding this money, I'm or I need to buy rice for my monastery. So I'm, I'm using it for that. What would be the difference between that and a monk physically never touching the money, but his steward um, uh, holding it for him and turning to the steward and saying this money, which was given in my name, um, please buy this water, please buy this umbrella, please buy this rice for my monastery. So he's, he's making ethical purchases. But what would be the difference between him directing a steward to do that and him actually holding it and doing it himself? Um,
0: a monk is not allowed, actually, to ask a steward in this way, like, buy okay. me things or mm-hmm. buy me that. Uh, the monk needs to be very careful, and the monk cannot ask the steward more than six times. Uh, if the steward doesn't do anything, uh, even after six, a sixth time saying, I need a rope or I need food, then... Um, then uh, the monk is not allowed to ask the steward anymore. He needs to go to the donor and tell the donor that the donation of the donor didn't bring any benefit to the monk. Mm -hmm. Actually, if the monk doesn't then inform the previous donor, the money donor, then um, uh, it's an offense. (laughs) So a monk needs to inform the uh, the donor. Uh, Now, the thing is that uh, the monk who needs to ask a steward uh, will ask, less if the monk has uh, holds the money, then the monk will certainly use the money more uh, and collect them more and be more afraid of them. Like, where is he putting the money? What's happening with the money? Uh, he would need to have a treasure and uh, you know have a key and that kind of thing and be afraid of thieves. Whereas if it's kept, uh, kept with a steward, then the steward is responsible for that. And either the steward will uh, bring uh, what the monk needs or the monk just tells to the donor, and the monk doesn't, you know, doesn't, is not allowed, you know, to care about where does the steward keep that money. Mm-hmm. So uh, this uh, helps the monk to really dedicate. The monk to the Latino and to be uh, to be satisfied with what we ha- what he gets.
1: Mm-hmm. So it helps him fulfill his monastic obligation of renunciation and only accepting what's given. So this catches us up to the Buddhist background and the Myanmar background. And you had mentioned that unwittingly you somehow found yourself in the middle of this, not realizing maybe what your stature was and how far your words travel. So now that the 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 audiences. Up to speed on understanding the the Buddhist injunctions as well as Myanmar culture, maybe you can tell us where your involvement with this fit in.
0: Yeah, so um, I started to teach that monks shouldn't touch money and that lay people should not give money to monks' hands. That they should uh, that if they want to donate something, then only to a steward. And uh, this seemed to be okay. This seemed to be okay for a long, long, long time. And then I made um, post in facebook where i because i wanted to get more knowledge there was no uh, offense intended i intended i wanted to get a list of monasteries in myanmar where monks learn scriptures without touching money right because the main argument against not touching money was that you uh, direct to me uh, you did not study uh, you know education in an educational center in Myanmar sure. so you cannot understand that they always need to touch money mm-hmm. and my answer to this would be well there are centers of education, you know, of monastic education in Myanmar, where no monk touches money. Mm -hmm. So that's my answer. And now I need a list of those centers, Mm -hmm. so that anybody who would like to follow the Buddha's teachings just know where to go. Sure. Uh, If, you know, if they want to be monastic and learn. Uh So I uh, made a post like, uh, hey, people, I know only a few. A monasteries where they don't touch money. Are there any more? Please let me know in
1: the comments. And it should be said, this is not an unusual tactic for you when you want to find information. I know this from working together on our book that when about any bits of information, we want to know um, where uh, there's a certain kind of curry dish and we're not exactly sure the origins of that dish something very very minute like that and we, i've seen you put questions out hey does anyone know about the origins of this curry dish or there's some village we're writing about where some arhant came from and we we have three different origin stories of that village and we want to be able to trace it back and you you have so many followers and people that are helping you that you just kind of put these questions out there hey we're kind of exploring this idea Can anyone get back to me and give some feedback? So it sounds like it was in that similar manner that you you weren't really looking to to um, to unsettle anything. You just hey, this is this is the question I have now. Let me throw this out to my followers, see what comes back. But it sounds like this time you got something very different back than in other cases.
0: Yeah, I would never imagine that (laughs) so many people, like lay people, they Mm. were just giving me the addresses. You know, address, 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 Mm. address, address. You know, monastery, 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 and. Uh, you, I would like yeah, one comment with the monastery address you know here no monk is touching mm. money all of them follow well. and the next comment it is not possible to live without touching money this is not possible mm. and another comment you know right. some other pe- person hey there is another uh, monastery they don't touch money at all look at here you know this is the address this isn't the name and then another comment of a monk you know like no
1: way like without mm. money how
0: can they ever follow so it sounds
1: like there were two different versions of reality being presented somehow Simultaneously, it sounds like they weren't even in this day of kind of fake news and you know the own reality, whatever whatever reality you want to promote being the one you can. It sounds like they're not even having an argument about a, a certain strain of logic or or this monastery does it. No, no, no. I was there and I I, I experienced this, but it sounds like it was just two completely different parallel yes. strands of logic that were being. That were being pushed out there at the same time.
0: Yeah, this was very rare that somebody would mm. recommend a monastery for the list, and the people would say, "No, it's not. Uh, no, they don't follow the vineyard. It was more like, uh, as it seemed, as if those monks who touch uh, who touch money didn't at all listen to to the list that there are monasteries which touch uh, which follow the the, the rules, mm-hmm. and the the lay people who knew the monastery the mm-hmm. monasteries where they followed the rules uh, they absolutely don't care that other monks uh, are. Are not able, you know, to to live without right, money. Right. And um, I, my conclusion from that is totally different, and that's very how to say that black, very dark conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that is that uh, this creates a big, this kind of list creates a big problem for the monasteries sure, where they don't follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. Because I basically advertise these monasteries yep. which follow Vinaya right. and uh, uh, direct all the lay people, all the public, to these monasteries right. and from all other monasteries. Yeah. And that's what they didn't like. And I would never have the idea that this, uh, that somebody would not like this. I would never have, I would never thought that the monks who have a monastery where they touch money, that they would not like like making this kind of list. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course, I totally accept that I'm very naive and very optimistic. Mm-hmm. And my idea was, well, if you want to be in the list, just stop using money and I'll add you there.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it didn't really go that way. And it absolutely
0: didn't go that mm.
1: way. So then, when this kind of blew up, what uh, wh- what was the reaction? When
0: yeah, the problem didn't arise from the list. The problem arise arose from my reaction. To the reaction of these monks. And
1: what was your reaction? What, and, you just explained that.
0: And my reaction was that I that I deleted the introduction to the list, mm-hmm. and instead I said, you know, like to like totally curb all of the uh, all of the dissatisfaction. I um, said, monk who touches money is not a monk. Mm-hmm. Monk who touches money is not the Buddha's son. You know, it's not like the Buddha's fi- follower, and monk who touches money is useless. And that's those what are the pretty Bush strong is. words. Yeah, and then I would and I would add like that this is what the Buddha said. Mm-hmm. And this was the core of all of this problem. Like sure. the list would not be a problem by itself. Like this would after some time it was silent. It was down the commentary and, about the list. Yes. And those
1: are pretty strong things to say. So you yeah. got quite a reaction from that.
0: Yeah. Now the problem is that the Buddha didn't say that the monk who touches money is right. not a monk. The Buddha right. says, uh, the the problem is that this is an understanding of of lay people from the Buddha's time who heard the Buddha's words. Mm-hmm. So you could say that indirectly it's it's the Buddha's word because that's how Pali, how people who spoke in the Buddha's language mm-hmm. understood the Buddha's words. Mm-hmm. But um, it is not exact and that's where they could take me for a word. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what they did. So I of course have shown that this, what I have wr- written number one, I learned from a monk who memorized uh, like, um, three and five, eight books of the Tipitaka. So very, very important monk. This is from whom I heard it, Mm -hmm. so it's not my invention. And second, it is actually in a book from a great Mm Bermicero that monks uh, who don't follow all the rules are not monks, Mm -hmm. exactly in that wording. And uh, so I could like substantiate that what I said is right. Mm But it's late. So at that time, when I wrote it too short, Mm. everybody could take me for a word. And all the the subsequent explanations which I gave in the other posts, they were no way as famous. Mm -hmm. So the monks then, uh, but again, uh, looking at it more as a darker problem from the darker standpoint, it seems that the monks do not like to be spoken of as uh, as wrong if they touch money so they simply like remove all uh, all, my, all my credibility mm-hmm. by saying this monk says that monks who touch money are not monks which is not in accordance with scriptures he knows nothing we know it he's mm-hmm. wrong we are right mm-hmm. and that way they like l- remove my credibility and can continue in whatever they do so they basically misuse uh, this uh, my shortening which is okay like I do not need to add scriptural reference when I ask somebody, please don't kill. I, I do not need to say in which book, <laughs> in which page is that written. Mm. I do not need to say, hey, uh, please stop stealing. The Buddha said he did, uh, that we should not steal. But I do not need to add, you know, reference in which page, which book, you know, and when right. did he say it. So in the same way, I do not need to say, you know, that uh, monks who touch money are not noble monks. In this case, I said they are not monks. But But this is exactly the answer to your question, whether I was misunderstood in Myanmar, you know? In Myanmar, Uh, we need to understand that people have certain meanings applied to certain expressions. And monk who touches money is not monk actually means that he's a layperson. Right. And it actually means that they committed the heinous crime of parajika, you know, such as killing, stealing.
1: And that was never what you meant.
0: And that was never ever what I meant. I meant like, hey, the Buddha said that if monk touches money, he's not a monk, therefore, please stop touching
1: money so you are monk. In other words, a defining characteristic of being a monastic is that you have given That's up the touching right. of money. But and that is mm-hmm. what the Buddha actually said. Mm-hmm. The Buddha said,
0: a monk doesn't touch money. Mm-hmm. And he said it in different, uh, in different synonyms, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like really clear. A monk doesn't touch money. If he is a monk, he doesn't touch money. Mm-hmm. So what I said would be basically correct, but in this exact wording, mm-hmm. it was uh, easily uh, twisted Around and used against me, so yeah, the monks we, who touch money can say that no, this Ashin Sarana, he knows nothing. We do it right,
1: right. And we should say this was a really big deal when it happened. Uh, casually, when I was talking to to um, to my friends, many people knew about it. It was something that many people were were talking about, and that the, 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 that was known and that was debating was. Um, what you had written and how it was being interpreted and how people were responding to it and how it was going to be resolved. And it was, uh, although there there's no such thing as kind of a monastic newspaper or a monastic, you know, journal that everyone kind of reads the, the the dailies of, that's kind of what Facebook has become. And in that sense, there were a lot of people that had never met you or had no contact with you that were just kind of following the day to day to see what was going on and how it was being resolved. And I know you know, people, your 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 friends were definitely concerned um, for you, and that that um, that you were the focus of something that obviously you probably wasn't very comfortable to to be in that position.
0: Yeah, the, the what uh, followed actually. Uh, was that a monk uh, decided to submit me to a monastic court mm-hmm. so that I'm like sued for this. Mm. Um, because I said some more things as I was explaining, I added some <laughs> some more ideas such as that uh, monks who touch money are worse than Devadatta, and mm. Devadatta was the monk who tried to kill the Buddha. That's a pretty extreme thing to say. <laughs> yes, and uh, I said that monks who touch money destroyed the Buddha's teachings, and that was actually approved as Correct uh-huh. as is, uh-huh. and uh, uh, monks who touch that there is no more danger uh, for uh, for the Buddhas, uh, for the for the community of the Buddha students, and for the teachings than touching ma- money, which was also approved later uh, by by educated monks. And uh, then I also said that monks who, had, who touch money are actually Mahayana. Uh, so I basically tried to find the weak spots, you know, of the monks and uh, uh, shoot there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a monk took these five things and uh, he submitted me at a monastic court for these five things. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not uh, at all knowledgeable in the in the things and that, that's why he was admonished during the court meeting oh. uh, for his ideas, you know, uh-huh. for what did he submit me for. Anyway, uh, he also twisted my words for the first thing, monk who touches money is not a monk. In brackets he says uh, he is... Uh, Fake monk, and that I never said. Mm. And again, that gives a very different meaning. Sure, fake sure. monk and not monk are totally two different things. That's right. In in the uh, if you, we say like legal legal wording, mm. so he added that he was admonished for that as well. And uh, before I attended the monastic court meeting, it it is literally meeting. So um, it didn't have any intention, and it could not at that level because it was just at the township township level. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have any power to stop me from teaching or to, st- to uh, curb my teaching in any way. Uh, but uh, it had the power to admonish me, to say, hey, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, and before I came to that court, I wrote a book. I wrote a book where I explained these five things with all references from Burmeseyados, from Pali scriptures and uh, when i brought the book there we basically read the answers from the book mm. so, so you were uh, very well prepared i was v- i was so lucky also to know these five mm, things sure, before sure. which we learned from somewhere around and around mm. and uh, so i was able to get very well prepared and when the monks who who were who uh, were examining me when they saw this book they couldn't believe that it's ri- that it mm. was written by me mm and I was also a little bit lucky for being a foreigner, so I was allowed to have an interpreter. And as an interpreter, I chose a great Vinaya master from a monastery where they follow all the rules. Mm. So he was basically speaking for me, and in Burmese, he's Burmese. Mm-hmm. So I was so lucky to have you know this fantastic support. Nobody else in the court would be allowed to have an interpreter or anybody you know sure. to follow with them. So I had, you know, this is such a stressful factor, being yeah. alone, yeah. examining by seven seven monks so i was lucky to have there a very good friend knowledgeable friend who was totally on my side mm-hmm. And so he explained to them that all what I said, all the five things are correct, and they accepted them as correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the problem was that if they are not explained, they lead to misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So rather than uh, understanding that my intention is just that the monks stop using money, the monks in Myanmar, many monks understood it as that I'm basically explaining that they are not monks, that they should just dedicate themselves to lay life. And that's a totally different thing, totally different interpretation. So the the monks, uh, the leading monks, the leading monks of the township, I think seven monks or six monks, they uh, made uh, like um, a decision for me, and like it's a it's written as a as like a contract, you know, or decision, official decision, where. Uh, I'm prohibited to say these five things, but it's not even mentioned these five things. So nobody can say what I'm actually prohibited from saying things, Mm -hmm. because it just says those things which Ashin Sarana said, he will not say them again in Facebook or YouTube, and he will explain them in Facebook and YouTube. Mm -hmm. So not only that... uh, uh, not only uh, that uh, I would be maybe prohibited from saying these five things, but nobody knows whether these five or one or two, so anything, uh, and uh, but it's attached to the to the main paper which accuses me, you know. So everybody would actually find out that it's about these five things and nothing else in the maximum, you know. So I would I'm not allowed to say these five things alone because that can lead to misunderstanding, as was the main decision of mm. the main monks there. And I am—I uh, signed that I will explain these five things. Mm. So not only that, I, I was also encouraged to continue teaching Dhamma, to continue teaching meditation, to continue teaching that monks should not touch money.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was encouraged by the leading township monks, you know, so, and I, I signed it and they signed it, you know, so like, Nobody can ever say that when I explain why monks shouldn't touch money, uh, why monks who touch money are not monks, why monks who touch money are worse than devrata. Whenever I explain it, I just follow what I signed up. I just follow the decision of the masters. So now the table is like totally turned, you know. I, see. I can now teach anything at all if it is and according to scriptures. Just I need to be careful that if I say these five things, I need to always add explanation.
1: Yeah, so I hope you haven't said anything incriminating in our last thirty minutes of podcast. That you're safe. That you're safe in this conversation. Uh, well, I did say all
0: of the five things actually, but uh, I didn't. Uh, but I explained them. I explained my intention, So I just followed what was decided by the great marks.
1: Okay, so as long as you're following the letter of your contract and you haven't right. incriminated yourself, on, absolutely, on air, then perfectly fine. You're in. You're in good position. So, do you have any? I think you know the interesting thing about this moment was that um, you know actually I I, I wasn't intending to, to to get here and talk about it at, at this time, but it came naturally because we were discussing uh, your Burmese language. It yep. came from your Burmese language. That's right. It came from joining Facebook to be able to experiment with just describing what you did to the day, and then when we were working together, I, I recall how you would use it to just gather information from people who knew and then you used it in the same way to learn about monasteries that were that were following a certain aspect of Inya, and this thing kind of kind of exploded and went into that issue in detail that that just happened looking back on it now uh, do you have any regrets uh, or, or things you would have done differently about um, how you handled it?
0: Yes, yes. I I should have written it more accurately. I mm-hmm. shouldn't have written like that the Buddha said that monks who touch money are not monks. I should have said that uh, the Buddha said that monk is the one who doesn't touch money. Mm-hmm. If I wrote this, all of this story would be totally different.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So. Does this inform you or teach you anything going forward? Now that you kind of know the platform you have, you it yeah. kind of takes something to blow up to realize how far your reach is and what the impact is. Does this uh, will this change or modify your approach going forward?
0: It did a lot. Like uh, I'm now much more careful to read commentaries, subcommentaries mm-hmm. for everything before I say something new. You know that mm-hmm. um, that I am not hundred percent sure that I have well studied with all the details, and uh, I add much more references and mm-hmm. much more quotations than before.
1: Right. <laughs> (laughs) Do you think that now that you've kind of brought this maybe unwittingly or unintentionally but you really brought this subject into the fore of Burmese Buddhist society, it was something everyone was talking about just a month ago. Do you think that this could have any effect of changing the way that this rule is being followed or not followed? Have you seen anything that would suggest that?
0: Um, for me, there is a big change because thanks to this problem, I learned about monks who don't touch money. Mm-hmm. I learned about thousands and thousands of monks who don't touch money. Mm-hmm. I I could, uh, I, I got in touch with fantastic monks who follow all the rules mm-hmm. and who know all the rules mm-hmm. and follow them without any difficulty mm-hmm. without any exception. Oh, that's great. So I learned about like whole communities of these monks. Mm-hmm. I have all their full out support. Mm-hmm. They've absolutely support everything what Mm. I said. Mm. They absolutely support me with all of what I said. They're absolutely uh, uh, disagreeing with all that court meeting Mm -hmm. and with all that disagreement and whatever the monks Mm -hmm. uh, try to twist my words. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, uh, I believe this is worth it. I think this is worth it. Of course, um, I will be more careful to add more references and quotations, citations, but this time, this one time, this was uh, worth it because i got such a fantastic support that i cannot dream of if if any other way
1: sure and you mentioned that you did make contact with many monks and communities you didn't know existed that are really carefully following this do you plan to do anything with that connection to build anything with that relationship or that knowledge
0: yeah basically uh we are basically partnering Mm -hmm. um I uh, At this moment, it's more of a one-sided partnering, but uh, there is a, a possibility from our side to, to help because they are only pariyatty or only education uh, monks, most of those who I know. So uh, from our side, we can provide them with meditation, uh, with a place where they can meditate following all of the rules. Um, and uh, it's more uh, free, you know, without any particular special rules. Uh, and we are good friends, you know. We are like on the same uh, on the same tune, mm-hmm. and that's much better. You uh, there would be like two main committee communities in Myanmar who follow all rules: Mahavihara and Paok. And uh, Mahavihara and Paauk are slightly different. And uh, the way how I live, the way of my understanding of the rules, it's m- more in tune of the Mahavihara style.
1: Pahok is more of a teaching monastery, more of a, of a, of a meditation, meditation monastery. That's right and Mahavihara um, is more of the education.
0: education. right. Yes, PAOK also have ed, has education centers mm-hmm. uh, and education possibilities though. Now the thing is that there are slight differences which are sometimes taken a little bit, maybe too much seriously. So uh, because I'm more in tune with Mahavihara, then it's easier for us to support Mahavihara monks. With how, how big meditation. is the
1: Mahavihara network, Myanmar?
0: I think now 5,000. I mm-hmm. think three to 5,000 for sure.
1: And outside of that network, did you also make contact with monks and communities that are of, following?
0: Of course, mm-hmm. Pa'ok, number one Pa'ok, with a lot of Pa'ok monks. I learned, I got uh, the opportunity to meet with a lot of uh, very good Pa'ok monks, thanks to this uh, op- thanks to this problem. Right. And uh, I met many monks who are not affiliated neither to Mahavihara nor Pa'ok, mm-hmm. uh, grade uh, um, uh, eight, how to say that uh, old uh, senior uh, right. senior siados, senior masters and uh, I've got so much of fantastic support mental support psychic oh. support and uh, the the interesting thing here is that I, uh, thanks to the support from Mahavihara, not only that I got this Vinaya master to support me during the monastic court meeting, he is actually one of the main Vinaya teachers in in the Mahavihara school. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I also now can uh, do all these official things, registering and everything. And uh, if I want to ask about building buildings and following rules, which I didn't memorize yet, I can always ask for their help. And if I don't know something, they can always support me and I can be totally sure that we understand each other.
1: Right. So it's kind of interesting because you never really meant to start a movement or make a collection or collaboration of people. You were just kind of going about your daily business of Dhamma discourses, question and answer newsletters, uh, Facebook posts. And somehow this happened and through this happening you it led to you inadvertently making this connection with kind of a collaboration community yeah. of of monastics some of which are in these two big networks of Mahavira and pauk and some of which are smaller communities outside but you now through this this happening accidentally, you can say you now have this this collection in contact with a number of these these peoples going forward. So, yeah. does that um, are, are are you thinking about further collaboration?
0: Yeah, uh, actually, the Vineyard Master has given quite a number of talks, which are recorded as a video. Mm. So, um, my idea was that I could promote them. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I am at the, at the level where I, where I can actually promote somebody else, mm-hmm. which is a very, very nice, <laughs> uh, nice feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a whole group of uh, young men who are, uh, are well trained to do subtitles for videos. And when a video has subtitles, it works much better in Myanmar because Burmese right. is so sloppy in, yeah. uh, in pronunciation that subtitles always help for any Burmese, not just so, for me. So these are
1: Burmese videos with Burmese subtitles?
0: Uh, we make the subtitles mm-hmm. for their Burmese videos and then I can promote those videos anywhere I want. I, we can make books with these things. Because uh, the boys, I actually trained them in making subtitles for, for videos. They are making them especially for my Tama my videos, of course. But we can make them for others, and we've done that already. We've done quite a few uh, quite a videos like that with subtitles, and uh, then took just the subtitles and made them in a, into a book. So the mm. book can be published, the video can be promoted. Uh, and uh, uh that's that's very good so that's how much we can help them mm-hmm. we can also help them by teaching English, but that still didn't start that's still uh, uh in uh, j- just planned and uh, we can also help them uh, teach meditation or provide them with a place for meditation that also hasn't started yet on the other hand, they can they help us they already help us with all these uh, law things and all these um, uh, official things. So let's say if yogis come to my new monastery, not this one where I'm right now, because that is under a head, under a different monk, but the new monastery is entirely dedicated for me only and Mm. my students. Where will the students? That will be close by to the one where where I stay now. It's in Légu. So a couple hours north of Yangon. Yes, to one and a half, maybe even one hour far from Yangon. It's closer
1: to Yangon. Mm, Sure, sure. Right. So this has become quite a mission for you. And uh, I guess I'd be curious to know of all the, the different aspects of your own monastic experience in Myanmar, your knowledge of the way Burmese Buddhism is practiced, it sounds like this particular thing has been a real sticking point and important thing to follow through on and to um, to to look at making some changes. Why why this issue is I guess what I'm curious about of all the things out there. Why is this something that you find so so important and critical?
0: If monks buy something, nobody else can uh, use it and if monks buy monasteries and lands then nobody can enter no other, no monk can enter the monastery mm-hmm. and uh, then how do you want to call this you know a buddhist community you know like they basically split and that's why I, that's why i said that they are worse than devaratha because the devaratha split the community he said like these are my monks uh, and uh, he played himself as a buddha uh, and To me, it seems like that, you know, because these monks basically by buying their things, uh, they split uh, the sangha, you know, they, they split mm-hmm. the community into the monks who touch money and buy things and the monks who don't touch money and who follow the rules. And uh, having the two two communities like this, uh, it's very difficult because they do not um, cooperate. You know, like the monks who follow the rules, they do not want to do uh, the recitation of rules with the others. They do not go, uh, they don't want to go for donations, for offerings with the other monks. They When I went with a monk, you know, from Pa'au tradition around a monastery where monks touch money and we're just like 200 meters far from it. You know, like we never visited. it. They never told us anything. And the monk just says, hey, these monks, they touch money. Mm. That's so bad, isn't it? (laughs) Like what? They didn't do anything. So uh, you can see how much they are splitted, and that's so so distressing. That should not happen, you know, in the Buddha's mm-hmm. teachings. So uh, this is uh, a big problem. Monks, unfortunately, both of the of the both groups look the same way and behave pretty much the same way. They
1: wear the same clothes, of they course. Wear the same yeah. Clothes. They <laughs> sha- have the, sha- same <laughs> the same hairstyles. Same yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so then people, when they see these monks who touch money, you know, as they are waiting on bus station and collecting money for their monastery into into their hands and asking people, you need to give us money, otherwise this is not right, and uh, monks who. Are renting their monastery or who buy a land and then they rent it for shops and mm. monks who enjoy with ladies you know who have babies and so on uh then when people know about these they think aha monks are like this mm-hmm. they don't think like monks who touch money are like this no they never think like that they think monks are like this and then they lose faith then they do not study and the buddha's teachings they do not meditate they do not work mm-hmm. on their path and in myanmar if you're not buddhist then well, then it's it's uh, you're basically empty, you know, because you don't have any direction. It's it's like me, you know, before I learned Buddhism.
1: Right, right. So you find it's degrading the whole possibility of the teach of the Buddhist teachings mm. on the promise of liberation.
0: That's right. Mm. That's right. Right. So I would like to to like uh, make it clear that monks who are doing this uh, uh, are not doing it right, and that lay people can support them in this. If the lay people don't give any money into the hands of the monks, they will not have them. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can, uh, so there is a way how lay people can support this and that's why this uh, can be well supported in Facebook, where is the audience complete. Mm -hmm. So my first, uh, I didn't know that monks will be so much interested in my teaching. I thought like monks certainly don't care because I'm a foreigner. I haven't been here uh, as a monk for longer than like eight years, so uh, certainly they will never care. But it turned out that uh, they do care mm. a lot. Mm. So so mainly my teaching was for lay people. I taught lay people hey, lay people, do not offer monk, uh, money into the monk's hands. Wait until he has kapya. If he doesn't have a kapya, if he doesn't have a steward, assistant, then uh, you need to get a phone number of his donor and speak with his donor. But never give money. So this is
1: a kind of awareness that you're trying to encourage in Burmese people and Burmese donors. And yeah, I've had the experience, you know, of being in downtown Yangon. Obviously, I'm not a monk. I don't look much different than normal backpackers or expats that are living here. And I've had the and so there's there's nothing about me that would look like I would know anything more or less about Buddhists and monks than than the normal tourist here. So. With that background, I've had the experience of being in downtown Yangon or in some kind of um, tourist spot like Inle Lake. And having Burmese novices come to me with their begging bowl saying, money, 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 thinking that. <laughs> you, I didn't know that. Yeah, right, right. And uh, and boy, are they in for a surprise because when that happens, I just unleash a torrent of Burmese of saying, you know, you think just because I look like this and that I don't know these rules, that that you're breaking your precepts and that you're, you're acting in a way that you know is not – uh, fitting of the robes that you're wearing and oh, they just can't run away fast enough but the thing is is I'm you know the foreigners they come and talk to I'm one in a million that would be able to speak the language and know the rules and give them that kind of admonishment when I do that there's often a number of Burmese around I've told that story to others and they say well boy how do the other Burmese relate to this foreigner kind of you know admonishing this this young monk and kind of sending him running away and the answer is they love it they absolutely love it they yeah. they, they love this kind of Um, moral and ethical response to keeping someone in line but then the question comes why does this keep happening why in in a society that's so devoutly buddhist where the the monkhood is so privileged and um, people are so are so devout and uh, you know every morning the monks uh, alms rounds goes in poor villages where people are giving you know the best of the foods they have and this is the the esteem they hold them in why? Why has this been such a problem to, to keep under wraps that you have, uh, you know, no- novices that are representing the religion to foreigners that have never seen a monk before and don't realize it, that it's abnormal for them to beg for money directly to go into their begging bowl, or that, um, uh, that that there's so many monks in Myanmar, whatever the number is, whether it's eighty percent or higher that it's such a high percentage that are unwilling or unable to follow such a basic rule. So I think the the, the, the question for someone who doesn't live here or is interested in the practice is, uh, why is this so hard to follow? Why is it so, so hard to rein in?
0: And because the people uh, have these five immeasurables, ananto, ananta, ngava, and uh, these five immeasurables are very, uh, very much followed here. They are the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's community, uh, the parents and teachers. So these five are immeasurable. So they're like always right.
1: Right, so it doesn't leave room for the critical thought or examination right. or, or change. Yeah, right. I, I remember another incident. I was going to a Buddhist site somewhere in the country. I won't say which one. And before I walked in, there were two monks sitting at a table. And they said, this is the charge for money, and stuck their hand out. And I was shell-shocked. It's one thing for a meditator, for a foreign meditator, to have to pay their money to enter a site of devotion. That itself is, is painful enough. But it's another thing when you are forced to hand that money to a monk who is demanding it into his hands to be able to walk in. So you're basically paying, you're you're walking, you're going to the site for your own devotion and practice. And you have to, because of the color of your skin and the the flag on your passport, you have to pay money to access it. But then if that's not bad enough, you have to help a monk break his precept and break his vinaya as well in order to access it. And I explained to them in Burmese, I said, I'm very uncomfortable doing this because I understand the injunction against monks touching money. And by access, I very much want to access the site and to show my reverence, but I don't want to help you break your vinaya. And they said, don't worry about that. They said, that's nothing for you to worry about. We're monks and we, we know, we know the rules and they're not rules for you to have to worry about. And I said, but I am worried about this because I have foreign friends that are monastics and I see how they follow the rules. And I see how I as a lay per- person can support or not support another monastic of following the rules, and as much as I want to see the site, I don't want to take an action which is helping you break those rules. And I know that monks can't touch money. And their response again was that it's not my place to wonder about these things, and that because they wear the robes, they 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 know they know what uh, what's allowed and what's not, and if they say it's allowed, then it's allowed. And so I didn't see the site.
0: Yeah, there is a place like this in Chan State, uh, a beautiful large caves. Where are monks who who collect money? You know, in or uh, as uh, as the entrance fee. Like I totally understand that entrance fee needs to be collected uh, so that the place, so the site, you know, can be repaired and supported and mm. uh, prepared for new visitors and cleaned and so on. And uh, I I think that this is a great way how somebody can support the site. You know, uh, and uh, if the Burmese people are not ready to do that, then the foreigners can appreciate the fact that this site is also open for the foreigners and they can support it. Like, I believe that this is very good, but as soon as it's the monk who is in charge of this, uh, that is uh, seriously disgusting. So I have have, uh, experienced this kind of thing and uh, this was particularly unpleasant, but at that time I didn't have uh, that much of knowledge that I have now. So uh, now uh, the thing what you can say is that if a monk uh, touches money, uh, then th- then the monk is not able to attain nibbana, and this is the Buddha's teachings. So uh, I am not going to uh, hinder your path toward nibbana, you know. And a monk is not allowed to touch money. Me as a monk, I am actually allowed to come and tear. Do you say that? Tear. 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 All those collected money from those monks, I can tear them and destroy them. I'm entirely allowed to do that. Have you done that? I have never done it. Would you do that? Um, I think I don't have enough stony heart for that, but uh, (laughs) I was thinking about it so many times, I cannot count. And if you
1: got a lot of attention for that Facebook post, I can only imagine how viral videos of you tearing other monks' money would go. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but again, I don't do Facebook to become famous or viral. Sure, sure, you know? sure. So uh, I do not consider things uh, whether they would become viral or not as sure. much as possible. I consider them whether they would be inspirational or not. Right. So, uh, hey, if I if I tear money, then what will the people think about me as the teacher of loving kindness, you know? About right. the teacher who teaches peace, you know? Yeah. And even though it is absolutely like specifically allowed in our rules uh, it's a commentarial explanation uh, because there was a case when a monk you know built a hut from mud he baked mud and the buddha saw it and he said but during baking mud there are so many animals dead and dying you know so he ordered his uh, the monks the other monks to break the hut And then the commentary says, if a monk has something that's not allowed, then another monk who understands the rules, and I'm absolutely sure that I am, and I was actually also certified as one who knows the rules by my own preceptor, uh, uh, then that monk who knows the rules is allowed to destroy that thing which is not allowed to the monk, Mm -hmm. such as money. And uh, so I would absolutely be allowed, and it would be very easy to provide all the citation page and number and everything. But again, you know, like people, will not be interested in explanations people will mm. see a monk who is uh, tearing money you know sure. and they will think hey what is happening to mm-hmm. our dear Myanmar you know like mm. monks now are destroying things of other monks mm. and uh, lo- careful. It, it looks more like an apocalypse yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> rather, rather yes. than as uh, attempt to make everybody peaceful Right. so um, uh, although it is allowed I would uh, certainly not do it and I would and if I ever happen to do it then I would never like it you know to become famous because people would never understand you know even with a thousand explanations this doesn't work right we need to be careful so uh the only thing that i uh that i could theoretically do uh is that i would explain to the monks that they are breaking the rules and uh that they shouldn't do this and that's basically everything i uh, i can do you know like um unless uh, I would know the the chief of the place, and the chief of the place, uh, if uh, if the place, would, let's say that the chief mm-hmm. of the place would be a layperson, and I would know that person, and that person would be my devotee, then I would say, okay, you cannot do this to the monks. And you say, "Yo, yes, venerable sir, he would kick them off immediately. That's very easy. But if I don't know the the chief of the place, and if he's not my devotee, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Then what happened was that uh, we actually... I don't remember whether it was i think it was actually free for me because i'm monk anyway i don't remember the details and but there were some people following with me some lay people and they uh, of course had to pay and i really really didn't like this and uh, so then we were waiting for the monk who is like he's a novice who is responsible for all the place there are some stories of gods and so on related to the stories to to the to the cave and the novice the novice apparently met with the gods in the cave who stayed there and they didn't wish that the novice meditates in that cave so it's a huge huge complex in of caves Shan State? yes it's in Shan State it's in the south Shan State yeah. I don't remember the name and uh, then uh, the novice is therefore very famous because he met with those gods there and then the novice like appointed a different place for the gods. And that is totally closed up and nobody is. Yeah, allowed this to is come. a
1: story we tell in the guidebook, I think. I think this was the research trip you took for some that of is the possible. pages that we wrote. So, that is possible, yeah, yes. Right, I remember that.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and we wanted to speak with the novice, but mm-hmm. uh, he happened to be meditating and mm-hmm. meditating and meditating. And we, of course, would not disturb the novice in meditation. That would go against all of my principle, you mm-hmm. Know, mm-hmm. principles. So uh, we were waiting there for him, and we were trying to call other authorities regarding the place. We couldn't call them up. He didn't open the door, you know. And so he just left, and it was all useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think that this is the way to resolve a problem anyway. Now, suppose that the novice would find out about this. I would explain to him that this is wrong. He would kick them off and he would apply lay people. And then that's it. You know, there is nothing special, you know, like this. Nobody would care. Okay, so there are monks. Of course, they shouldn't be there. There should be lay people. Everybody would agree. Nobody would say a word. And it's immediately silenced because nobody, nobody cares. This is not the way to resolve it. My solution is different. My solution is that from the government there should be a decision that all uh, that all educational centers, all monasteries, should prohibit touching money, and those who don't pro- pro- prohibit touch money, touching money, will not be officially recognized as an educational center for monks. That will entirely change all all that. Would situation. that be
1: the role of a lay government or of senior sangha members? This is the role of the uh, of the lay government. Why would that be the role of a lay government as opposed to the senior members in the sangha, who traditionally it's their job to police their own? their own monastic organization, which falls out of lay structures. I mean, in Myanmar history, there's been a number of precedents where the um the lay authorities have gotten a little too enthusiastic in monastic details whether it's purification of the sangha or uh, monastic education or some some part of vinaya regulation and often there's a pushback from within the sangha that hey you know you you run your body we run ours so why would you suggest in this context why would you suggest that you would actually like to see the lays taking greater charge of sangha matters than within the sangha itself
0: yeah, it starts from the lays. Of course, it must be made But the monks will be those who would probably be touching the monks, the money anyway. Well, not like you, monastery. though,
1: there's, there's monks who don't touch money. Why why would it have to come from the lays? Why not from within the sangha from top to bottom or bottom to top? Yeah. Why, why couldn't it be handled directly there? Because there is this, there has been this historic concern that when lays start to become too interested in a body that they're not part of, that the sangha loses its independence, which is, um, which is believed to go back to the Buddha, the primary teacher himself.
0: There is a very um, how to say, very um, shameful problem, and that is that the leading monks, the highest, the most leading monks in Myanmar also touch money. Mm-hmm. So it can go only from the government mm-hmm. uh, which knows uh, that monks should follow the rules. Mm. There are some monks uh, from the leading uh, from the leading level who don't touch money though. And that I know 100 percent, and I know them personally, some of them. Uh, But uh, the problem is that if the government makes the push to these leading monks that they should prohibit it, then these leading monks can do it. If the government doesn't make uh, the push, then these leading monks will say, hey, I'm a leading monk, so I can touch money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, which is absolutely wrong and uh, they will just not make any such decision. Mm. So the government uh, is responsible for registrations. So the government is responsible for registration of uh, of these uh, monasteries as a monastery, as a monastic uh, position of the land, as the monastic land uh, of the monks who stay there. The, monast- uh, the government is responsible for recognizing monasteries as monast- uh, monastic, so they do not, uh, you know, like collect uh, tax and so on from them. and. And... Uh- whatever you do as a registration of monastery, it always, now because I'm going to have a mo- new monastery, I know all these sure, <laughs> these sure. things. So if the government doesn't like it, if the ministry doesn't like it, which is all run by lay people, oh, uh-huh. you can do nothing. There is no monastery possible. But if the monks don't like it, it doesn't matter. If the government, if the ministry likes it and the monk doesn't like it, it doesn't matter. If the monk likes it, but the government and ministry doesn't like it, you can do nothing. So in Myanmar, really for, Uh, For monasteries to be registered as monasteries, it always goes through the secular uh, secular portion. And if the secular portion will say, we cannot register your monastery, or we cannot keep your monastery registered, if uh, you do not uh, officially prohibit uh, touching money to both monks and novices, in, uh, so like every monastery would have to have a sign that no touching money is allowed to monks and novices here. So if every uh, meditation center, if every educational center, it's especially for educational centers, because meditation centers do not have this problem that much, they just follow the rules usually. Uh, Then if this is uh, done, then it's so much easier because the novices, you know, are are taught to touch money. Like the novice will never have the idea to touch money. So if the government decides that all this decision must be there, otherwise it cannot be understood officially as a Theravada Monastery, then this would be a big blow and they would have to change.
1: Right. Great. Let's take a break there. I'm especially excited to bring you the guests that we have coming up, but before doing so, I want to offer sincere gratitude for those listeners who have supported our effort. Thank you. Without your generous contribution, we would not be able to do what we're doing now. And if you have not yet donated, we'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that our work is 100% listener supported. In fact, no team member receives full remuneration for their work. Some volunteer all of their time, while others offer a massive discount for their professional services. But even so, every episode we produce has a cost. Any contribution of any amount that you make towards Insight Myanmar will allow us to continue our work and pump out more content for meditators related to the Dhamma in the Golden Land. If you find the Dhamma interviews we are sharing of value and would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. You may give via Patreon at www.patreon.com insightmyanmar, as well as via PayPal at www.paypal.me slash Myanmar. In both cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. You may want to reflect a little more deeply on some of the themes explored in the last discussion. Following every interview, my friend Zach Hessler and I take some time to process the depth of what was said, Zach has been to Myanmar on numerous occasions and spent three years here as a forest monk, and so we hope that our talk can add depth and context to the interview. He's now living in rural Thailand, and I'll just make a quick call on Skype to connect with him now. Hey Zach, how you doing?
2: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so good to connect with you this week. We, uh, we're talking about, uh, Usarna, someone that, uh, we both have a bit of a history on.
2: Right. Bantes played uh, quite a role in my, uh, life as a monk in, in, Myanmar. He was there from the, from the very first time I, I came to visit you at Shweigelmin. He was instrumental in helping me stay there with a tourist visa. I owe him actually quite a debt of gratitude for, really uh, give me time and teaching me uh, Burmese. Uh, He gave me about a half an hour a day for almost a year, as long as I committed to studying three hours a day minimum. That was our deal. And, uh, yeah, and that whole section on uh, learning languages reminds me, I really need to get on my my Thai learning.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right. Um, Language learning is definitely uh, something that opens a lot of doors uh, when you're in other countries, certainly when you're in Southeast Asia. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was interesting for me to hear his story. I knew the broad strokes of it. But I guess um, one way to think about it is that, like, if you say you have, um, you, you know, your grandfather or something or, or some teacher from school and you just kind of know who they are in that mode of life. And when you think about them being a younger person that brought them from where they were before to where they are now— then uh, it 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 opens up what you think you know of the person, and for for me, I've never known Usarna outside of robes, and so his whole personality and his um and and who he is in Burma is everything uh, of which I've always known him, and so to hear this background story of how he got there, and you know, being an adolescent, being a child, being uh, a teenager, going through college, um, early twenties, that was just very interesting to hear those steps that led him to where he is now. And the roadblocks were quite interesting. You know, he didn't know any Buddhists. He wanted to meet these Buddhists in in Czech Republic. And it took him a long time just to make a simple Buddhist friend, um, the feeling closer and more attached to his girlfriend, possibly becoming a wife. And not knowing how to get out of that, his dad not giving permission or initially being hesitant to want to give permission to become a monk and wanting to encourage going to university. When you see Usarana now, you just have a feeling this is what this guy was born to be. This is who he is. And so to hear about some of those challenges and the challenges were were somewhat unusual they, in in the the pleasures they were offering him. And to hear what they were and how he developed in them to be who he is now, which is all I know of him, was quite interesting for me.
2: Right. For me, too, I, I've heard some of those stories or, or certain aspects of those stories. But it was nice to hear it flushed out. I, I got a few different pieces and some new angles on it. So, yeah, great. Another, another thing I thought was fascinating in that early part of, of uh, once he did make the connections to... Uh, Buddhism, the you know the interest in, in becoming a, a Buddhist monk because of the psychic powers, you know the higher psychic powers that they could achieve. Then he started to read some some Buddhist text, and uh, he talks about that one on impermanence. And it's it's such a I really he really come to life would uh, when he was explaining that part. Right? It was so charming uh, when uh, the Buddha said, "Is the body is it permanent or impermanent?" And he said, "And the Buddha says it's impermanent." and uh, And he's asking, is it really, is it really impermanent? And he's just so fascinated by the question and the answer. And then it just never, it's a whole, it's like, it's like there's a part of him that really woke up there uh, with, not with conclusions, but with fascination and interest. Just something, yeah, it came alive in him. So I thought that was really uh, charming.
1: I, I really appreciated his honesty in that section as well of just his complete bafflement of what the answer would be and why it would be that way. Because there's this sometimes when you're reading these texts, there's this kind of call and response um, issue going on. And call and response can also kind of compel you to want to answer what the crowd's answering. And um, and his his just naked vulnerability and honesty of of the time when he was reading it of just absolutely not knowing and yet being on the edge of his seat. Um, yeah, I found I found Charming also inspiring as well, just, just how open he was with how much he didn't know.
2: Right. Yeah, that, that part really touched me.
1: But another thing I wanted to mention was um, I, I was really struck by this idea of the media narratives that were going on. I'm actually jumping quite a bit now. I realize we're talking about his early development, and and I've now kind of fast-forwarded into – when he starts to talk about this controversy that hit him the whole second half of the interview that um, that arose uh, from a seemingly uh, mundane decision of uh, wanting to study, wanting to get better at, at his Burmese by um, having Burmese friends on Facebook and talking. And it developed into this this huge narrative, this huge issue of the monks touching money that he describes in such detail. And just, just to take a moment to talk about Facebook in Myanmar and its role here, you know, it's hard to live in Myanmar without Facebook, just putting it simply. I didn't have Facebook before I came here, but it's such a a... A shared mode of communication that it's hard to get anything done, whether you're trying to talk to friends or you have a business or you're trying you have a, a question you want to ask about something. Uh, it's it's been a centralizing force. And this is well documented when they talk about when major newspapers are talking about some of the problems of Facebook and misinformation. Myanmar is one of the test examples they're often holding up, and there's a reason for that. This is a country where they're was not really internet. There were certainly not cell phones just a decade ago. When people wanted to hear the news, they would go to tea shops. Even the newspapers or TV, you couldn't really get much solid information about what was happening. So the commonly known thing was you'd go to a tea shop and you just hear all the rumors, and then through those rumors, you would start to make sense of it. So it went from, from that kind of culture to a culture where every single person within a couple years had smartphones, Web 2.0, and Facebook, mainly Facebook. That was the way they were uh, sharing information and uh, communicating. Um, and so it was really this centralizing force that has brought people together. It's kind of, kind of been a perfect storm as well. Um, and so I find it really interesting that on one hand, Bonte is discussing the use of Facebook as a way to reach lay people it wasn't intended that way it was intended as a simple burmese language learning um, opportunity but then it developed from all these people that he was practicing his burmese with and they realized he was a foreign monk he started to use it to help them with their meditation practice or to guide them in life or to answer general questions and he would do newsletters and he would take questions from people and discuss matters openly and all in written burmese sometimes in spoken burmese and videos and uh, so it's this really kind of clever tool of using dynamic modern forms of social media to spread the Dhamma further and further. But then, of course, what happens unwittingly is he becomes at the center of this this controversy uh, by not, not really knowing how he got into it, just through this way of trying to answer these questions from laypeople. And one of those questions happened to be with monks touching money. But what was really interesting about that was when he was describing the comments that occurred on this post uh, where he was discussing this matter of monks touching money, the comments themselves showed completely alternative and, alternative and conflicting forms of reality, where he would describe one person would write, yes, I know of monks and monasteries that don't touch money. This is the name. This is the place. This is the person. Then the next person would write, no, that's impossible. There's no one like that in this country. And he was getting, in the, the way he described it, it sounded like it was like this 50-50 version of different sides, asserting their own reality, and then clear as day, everyone seeing that these are two different versions of reality that are not matching up, and yet there they are side by side. And uh, and so I found that role that Facebook played in his Dhamma life here, and the good and the bad, really kind of, you know, troubling and fascinating and inspiring and, and all these things all together when seeing how it all played out.
2: Right. It's actually... It's actually... Something that I see happening all over uh, the Internet now. It seems like you can, whether intentionally or unintentionally, like this information can be dropped in and then and quickly polarize. And so uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's really fragile and uh, you can actually get an erroneous narrative setting in actually become it can become a standardized narrative. And so I, I think uh, yeah, I think there's a real vulnerability there. And so it exemplifies itself in a place like Myanmar, especially since, as you said, uh, I mean, Facebook isn't only a, just a part of life. It's actually, if, if you think about how they perceive the Internet as Facebook, like they don't have, they don't really use email, for example, like when they're on the Internet and they're communicating with people, it's Facebook. So, uh, and the, yeah, just that, that, that fragility in there.
1: Yeah, that's right. And sometimes when you're trying to give someone a website and you say, well, pull up your browser, I'll give it to you. They pull up the Facebook app and you say, no, 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 I mean the website. And then you realize that either they don't have like Chrome or Mozilla on their phone, or if they do, they've never used it before. Um, So this is just the uh, standard way of how all communication gets done that's replaced everything that came before it. So this was just not only a perfect storm of what Facebook has been in Myanmar, but also a perfect storm of this young foreign monk walking into this dynamic uh, social media platform, which he doesn't even fully understand, and then these alternate versions of reality just competing with each other openly as, as it's uh, as it's unfolding.
2: Right. Another another factor there is that um, he is a foreigner, and and there's a particular. This is this is one of the pieces in the recipe for this perfect storm is that. Myanmar, I found, has a, a sensitivity to the influence of outsiders. We see that in their current attitude toward the uh, international media and uh, certainly I faced it as a monk, and Usarna did as well, that, you know, uh, coming in and making bold statements about the culture in general are, uh, you can, that's, in that, in that fragility on that platform, and in this new era, it, it can so quickly, the sensitivity there is just so strong. It, 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 I'm not surprised how quickly it polarized and became an issue uh, all the way up to like uh, him being sued.
1: So also since we're on the topic of talking about media narratives and such, one of the things I found really interesting was this idea that Usarna got behind the narrative, the narrative got in front of him. Um, As he later told this whole story in all the details that he shared with us, these facts were very different than the broad narrative strokes that I was hearing as this happened. And it has to be said, this was a really big deal in Myanmar. Um, I don't know if it was reported in actual newspapers, but that kind of doesn't matter because Facebook is its own kind of newspaper. This was something that throughout the country... I think you could just go to someone and say, you know, have you heard about this issue of the Czech monk, or they might not know he's Czech, the foreign monk who's talking about monks touching money. And I think a lot of people, I think just that quick test, a lot of people would have heard some version of that story, even though no one really had the complete version. And there were a couple different takes that I heard with these broad narratives, one that was more favorable towards Usarna and one that was less favorable. The more favorable one presented a story of this foreign monk who was trying to live under this really good discipline and follow these rules. And because he was being more open about the need to follow these rules, that this establishment or some, some senior monks were kind of coming down on him and not wanting him to, to uh, reveal um, uh, this level of, uh, of rule following that he was carrying out because it put others in a bad light the 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 narrative that got ahead of him that wasn't as favorable took kind of the same story but it just put it in a negative light that here you have this foreign monk who is come who's also very junior and he's coming into our country and he's telling other people how they should be acting and casting this judgment so in both cases there's this overall overarching narrative view which ends with him being admonished, and actually, in the end, very few of those things were actually accurate. And this is something that you hear in media studies anywhere, certainly in America as well, that once you get behind the narrative, even if the actual facts on the ground contradict every aspect of that narrative, it's hard to ever get your message out there again because that initial narrative takes hold, not just at the time it's happening, but for big events, even for years and decades later, people still remember that narrative more than they remember how the actual facts played out. And so when you hear Usarana speak about... um, the story in detail and what happened, uh, every step of the way, you know, he, uh, one, he was taken to monastic court. That's true, but he didn't face any kind of censure or admonishment in his telling. He got off scot-free and not only that, he had somewhat of a blessing to carry this mission on further. He had some, some advice and some guidance and how, and the level of care he had to choose in how he presented the Buddha's words, but, uh, and doing and, and bringing scriptural reference. But, um, neither of those early, um, uh, neither of those early narratives were necessarily true. Uh, and in accordance with the facts as he later told them. So through no fault of his own, just by falling behind that overarching narrative structure, that kind of got set in people's minds and was very different from the actual story that came forward.
2: Right. It's kind of like a, a wildfire, huh? Once the wind starts blowing, it, it just takes off like like crazy. Uh, and it's really like this. Like like you've been saying, it's, it's, it's the perfect storm There's lots of things come together in that moment that we we've, we've, we've talked about some of them as a I when I was a monk, there is this difficulty you know, because we do approach. Foreign monks approach the Dhamma differently. We come from the text because we don't have a culture or tradition of it, whereas they come from there. It's such a part of their culture that it's, they, they lean on tradition. And so sometimes these things come into conflict. I mean, there's some things that are beautifully carried forward in their tradition. And these are some things that we miss in Western Buddhism sometimes. But there are other things that they carry forward that aren't actually part of the text and so like and but they just become normalized and then so the touching money is one of those issues and then you have you know so there's a lot of foreign monks that that are trying you know they're trying to follow the dhamma and the vinya especially in this case the vinya as best as they can according to what they understand directly from the text or at least the translation of the of the pali text right and uh, it's not like there can't be any errors in there, but, but they're sourcing it more directly. But this can, put, this can put foreigners in conflict with the tradition. This happens quite a bit. Now, I think there are one skillful way to handle it. It's just to, just to be a good monk, but kind of mind your own business in a way. If you choose not to do that and you choose to voice the issues there's probably thousands of ways to be unskillful with this and this happens a lot um, and then there there's a way to do it and what i've always found interesting about bante is he took he tried to be skillful about the second choice he learned burmese to the best of his ability and to quite a, you know a pretty high level where he could articulate himself and he also tried to mimic their academic uh, monastic learning in such a way that he would be able to make it not his opinion or a foreigner's opinion, but, but. Directly pointing to the sources of either the Buddhist words or the commentaries or the sub commentaries words and in this culture, they highly value the, the text and the commentaries and the sub commentaries. And so in this case, you know, when when he did go to court he had actually written a small book about this topic, those five points he made, and came prepared with these, these uh, scriptural um, references. to and, and so that's actually what, what saved him. I've just not met another monk that, that has prepared himself with these difficulties for his face in that particular way. And it, it paid off for him here, thank goodness.
1: Yeah, that that was an enormous story of going to court with a book that was already written on this very issue that was able to be referenced and to make use of a, appointed, um, a court-appointed interpreter who just happened to be one of the masters of India. he definitely set himself good in that situation. Yeah, and I want to go back to something you had said just a moment ago about foreigners that are taking these kind of points more seriously and trying to live by them— um, th- you're talking about foreign monks that are coming to practice in uh, Burmese Buddhist monasteries, but if you take that on a more general, uh, a, a more general perspective, that's something that's kind of true anywhere. Is that when you're when you're looking at new, um, I don't know what to call them, new converts or new students. Um, new learners, new disciples to a certain kind of field, they bring with them a different sense than the people that come from that. And that's true, whether you're talking about art or music or religion or whatever it is, that when you're coming from outside of that tradition and you're choosing to want to be involved in it, it it's ironic that in some ways you do take a more traditionalist approach because you're making such a... a, a um, a profound decision in your own life to come to a different place and a foreign practice, whatever that practice is. And because you have made that decision, you really want to do it the right way. And that's very different from coming up in it, where that's the only thing you know. And I think the first time I was exposed to this idea, I was actually hearing about the foreigners that would come to India to learn sitar. And the I think the Indian teachers were saying something about how these foreigners just had much more respect and interest in learning some of the foundation of the chords they had to use to play the sitar whereas the local indians sometimes would want to jump to something else and um and and there was just a, a more um a more focus and interest and desire to want to abide by and learn that tradition because they had these musical students had come to want to learn that in the first place. And so that uh, when you apply that kind of logic to the foreigners that are coming here to ordain and be monks, like for the level of sacrifice they're making in their lives, it would be kind of silly if they did all of that. And then they were only following the rules halfway.
2: Right. So I, I think that's like the plus point of coming in from, you know, as a you know, someone so novel to you know to a tradition. Uh, the the flip side of that, the the ugly side of that is is sometimes that is a condition for for arrogance, right? A way to judge the locals. Uh, hey, they're not you know they're they're traditionalists, and they you know the, the 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 discipline has slipped, and you know now it's like this and that's normalized, and and they're. I mean, my mind certainly as a monk had you know suffered that at times. And I mean, suffered that because it's my suffering, right? It it caused conflict internally. And then if I spoke it, you know, even if I tried to speak it uh, carefully, it still led to conflict. What what I was forgetting often is causes and conditions. And, you know, we were reminded of this in in Alan's interview, you know, like he said, like, could I have been a horrible person? You know, the the ones that were doing these atrocious things. Yeah. And in the right conditions, I could. I mean i don't think money touching money is among is as atrocious as the things he was talking about but certainly of course if i grew up in in myanmar and i became a monk in a certain monastery and the people around me were that's what they did then of course that's what i would do so so there's a there can be a lack of compassion on on the other side so and a, a lack of appreciation it can it can become. Too extreme in the sense that then Westerners sometimes then just toss all the tradition out as not being of value, and I think I think that goes too far as well. So there's there's this balance on both sides. I think there's something to appreciate in in tradition, and I think in I think there's something to appreciate in what Westerners bring to Western Bo- uh, to Buddhism in general, and I don't. I don't think we've quite yet reached that balance, but, you know, uh, mindfulness and awareness will, will help us get there.
1: Yeah, that's true. Both certainly have uh, a lot to be able to offer both sides of, of coming together and wanting to look at, um, how to practice and make the most out of these precious teachings. What you talked about also makes me think of. The line, so to speak, that we as Westerners come out of in coming to Asia, which is the Orientalist movement, and the Orientalists fell exactly into the trap that you described, of looking at their understanding of the text and judging very harshly that the contemporary people of that country were not living up to the mark. And I think that kind of arrogance um, that we saw you know, 150 years ago and among the Orientalists, these Westerners who were studying. Um, Asian life and religion and practices. I think that's something that's still very much found today by foreigners who come to Myanmar and other countries. Is this this arrogance that you have lost the right way, which we have gained, we we have preserved, and um and there's still that kind of judging and harsh critique. And that when you talk about the perfect storm of uh, where U S A R N A found himself, that that deep pain and hurt on, on the Burmese side of foreigners coming and yet again, giving a lecture of what they're supposed to be doing, especially about their own practice can really strike a nerve. And actually, you know, Usana never did that. He would never did, he he would never even think about doing that, but that's how the initial narrative started to take, to take shape.
2: Right. And that narrative actually, it, it formed on the back of, of, of these kinds of things happening historically. So, so there's a, there's actually a precedent for it. So that's, that's also part of uh, the perfect storms, Like what, you know, the conditions that are developing uh, uh, culturally ahead of that. So, you know, it was just, it was just such a ripe uh, environment for, for the whole quagmire to arise.
1: So staying with this topic of Usarana describing the situation of monks touching money, one of the last things he said I I also found quite striking, and that's where I I think I had asked him the question of, um, in this deeply devout Buddhist country, why is one of this most fundamental of uh, rules uh, not being followed? Why is it so hard? And he answered by discussing the five immeasurables and specifically describing how on the lay side, the faith in these people you're supposed to have faith in and show respect for, he didn't say it this way, but reading between the lines, there was this inference that the faith in these people and the deference to these people was replacing the critical thought in examining how what they were actually saying, how they were actually living, what was being done in accordance with uh, scriptural accuracy and, the, and and adhering to the text and the scriptures. And so that these there uh, by following the five immeasurables and showing respect for who they should show respect for, there was a certain kind of critical faculty that was being shut off. And I found that very interesting. Another theme that links back to other guests we've had. we talked about this extensively with the interview with the Bawa Sayada, where we talked about him being someone, that stepped outside of this normal way of just doing what you're told and staying within a certain form. And his own openness and critical faculties had led him far away from the usual way that you're expected to behave in a traditional Burmese Buddhist society. And it also links forward, just to give a little bit of a preview, uh, to to Sui Win, um, a guy we'll be having on, a political prisoner who uh, started meditating while in jail and is also central to his story of of really being against this mindset that you just have to, um, do things the way you're told because everyone else has done them. And it's interesting here because these five measurables, I mean, on face value, this is a wonderful thing. You should pay respect for people that, that are deserving of respect. I mean, who could argue with that and who could argue, uh, the quality of deferring to people that, um, that have, that have some kind of stature or have offered you something precious in your life. And yet the way that he, that Usarana contextualizes the five measurables taking place in Burmese Buddhist society, it's being seen as a, um, um, as blocking these critical faculties to be able to look at, um, this fundamental following of the Vinaya.
2: And of course they, that's like an analysis. They don't actually know that anything's being blocked, right? They're just, they're just following along with, with things that, uh, they believe are are valuable in the way that they do them. This reverence, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, and I'm not sure where that comes from. I, it, if it's commentarial, you know, I, I don't, they don't necessarily know or care where it comes from. I mean, it, it, if if it's scripturally relevant, whether it comes from, for them, that means either from the early scriptures or from the commentaries or sub-commentaries, uh, that's that's good enough, you know, uh, whereas, you know, I look at it, as like, well, I mean, the, the suttas are full of, of local people complaining about the behavior of the monks. And, and, and this actually helped shape the vinya, because, you know, the monks were behaving poorly. And, and the admonishment that not behaving well as a monk actually harms the faith of the people. And so it's an interesting, how to say it, kind of like a straitjacket for, for traditional people. Because they do suffer bad behavior of monks, and yet, culturally, and not just as a, a letter of law culturally, but in their hearts as well, there's this there's this conflict, there's this tension, because they do have such reverence for the monastic order in general. So, I mean, internally, they have this quagmire themselves that they, they uh, you know, what do you do with that? Of course, they... They, they defer to the respect, you know, in, uh, in, in, in Asian culture, as far as I've learned, you know, they're going to defer to not confronting anyways. Uh, and then, and then the, the, the respect level is, is I mean, it, it, that's not just a show. They, I mean, it's so deep in their hearts as well. So I actually appreciate the struggle of that whole situation and kind of understand how it manifests like this. But it's easy to not see the nuances of that as a Westerner and then just come in and judge. And I think that's uh, I think that's problematic. That just adds more uh, suffering (laughs) essentially.
1: Yeah. It really takes a skillful balance to be able to, to come to such a foreign country and culture and practice. And on one hand, to not lecture, to not say, well, I've read these books or I've done this practice or I have this teacher and therefore this is the way it has to be. And then the other hand, not be, so to speak, like an apologist for everything and and a justifier, a defender that, oh, this is the, you know, everything that's being done here. This is exactly how it should be and nothing's wrong. And there's... Um, uh, every aspect of this society is um, is completely in accordance, and I think that when, as a practitioner, you're here for longer periods, I think you and I think I definitely have have strayed to either side at times, uh, and then realized I was a little far over and had to self correct, but to try to balance that and to see things as they are, to have proper respect, but also critical faculties, to have faith, but also trust in yourself and your own understanding of the practice and the teachings, that is something that takes incredible skill.
2: Right. Well, I think it's a, I think it's, how to say it? I think in in the history of Buddhism there's a, a rare opportunity here where there is a an East meets West uh, phenomenon and it's not just East and West so much as uh, tradition and culture and uh, on the one hand and scripture on the well, I, I guess that's oversimplifying it, but I think there's an the two different approaches really there's an opportunity there that I think both the overall there could be a benefit uh, of course, I come from one side of it, so all I can actually do is is do the work of of balancing internally, and looking at some of the just looking at what the mind does with things. Like you said, going to sometimes to one one side too strongly, and 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 then but blaming that on the you know well they're like this, and that's what the problem is. You know, not looking at like the source of of suffering that's really in this mind. And so the work I can do is internal uh, <laughs> and the work I, I tend to do when, when the mind goes unchecked is to try to correct everything externally and, and that, <laughs> that there is a way to influence that skillfully and perhaps Bonte has, has showed us some of that by, you know, by, by looking at how they approach things and, and try to uh, acquiesce to some of the, the ways and means.
1: So yeah, this conversation about the monks touching money and Usarana's role in all of this last year, it's just it's such a rich topic. There's so many different angles and elements to to look at and to process. And another part that we focused on that I spent quite a few questions following up on because I I found his approach so fascinating was this idea that he wanted his solution for wanting to correct this problem going on was to look for lay involvement and greater lay control of Sangha issues than monks themselves. And that was quite surprising to me because in the reading that I've done, and I, I referenced this in the interview with him, there's these historical precedents of, uh, of, of the king and other lay officials that are getting into Sangha Matters. And there's there's often quite a bit of pushback from the monks themselves saying, hey, you you do your thing over there. This is your job. And you let us be independent and do what we're supposed to do and not interfere to, to too great a degree. And he's basically waving a flag saying, over here, over here, interfere. Come here and tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, And I was quite confused what his motivation was for that. And when I pressed further... He finally revealed at the end the motivation was, um, was that the, the, the seniors in the sangha who could be doing something about this are not making it a priority and him as a junior does not, he doesn't have many options open. And so for him in his place, the best way forward that he saw was to have lay people of stature start to speak out more and, um, and do what they could to try to influence changes.
2: Right. And I wonder about that. You know, that's a that's something I have actually have a, a leaning towards that I don't think I don't think unless it involves laws of the country that that uh, any uh, anyone outside the monastic order should should be involved in these kind of things. Yet when I did heard, I, I heard in his explanation that uh, quite quite good reasons for it in this particular case. So. Uh, but you know, when I, I heard about like kings disrobing monks and stuff, I always thought that was wrong. There's really only five ways to to be disrobed: uh, committing one of the four uh, defeats or parajikas, or um, deciding yourself to disrobe. That's the fifth way. There is actually, according to the Buddhist teaching, there is no other way. I mean, unless you count dying <laughs> as a disrobing. But uh, and so. So, yeah, I think this is really, like, do we really want, do we really expect the lay supporters to memorize the monks' rules, and is it that their responsibility? Is it the, is it the government's responsibility in general? So, I mean, I guess it just takes flexibility, because like Bonte explained, he made a good case for it. So, so um, I just worry about the precedent that sets. You know, and so I'll acquiesce to the point he made and and yet I still think it's a it's a it's a, a discussion. It's inconclusive in my mind. You know, I think ideally it would not be outside of the monastics, but then I'm not sure everything going on these days. Is ideal. So there are different conditions and they may call for different uh, decisions.
1: That's right. It's a dangerous precedent to go down that road, but it's also might be a situation where there's no, th- there's no easy solutions. There's n- every answer is going to be fraught with some kind of risk, and this is just the particular risk that Usarna is feeling is the most appropriate one given these circumstances.
2: Right. Well, at, a, at a personal level, I, I, when I was a monk, I, I, I didn't touch money. And it wasn't just rules following there's there's a real beauty you know that the, the Buddha talks about a, a dust-free life you know uh, uh, compared to the lay life and if one holds on to money in those circumstances it really they'll never they'll never know that freedom and so I have a, a personal wish that that people will take that chance and actually abide by that rule so I have a there is an attachment there and so this particular controversy over money and, and, you know, what does it mean to be a monk? You know, a a monk is one who doesn't touch money. That's, I think, how Avante described the the words of the Buddha on this issue. Uh, I I would like to see creative ways to get back to that, you know, and, uh, but I so it's interesting that it's come up at all. I, I'm so even if it was a, um, a controversy at the way it came up and uh, the results of it, you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder about the narrative and how that will carry through, you know, versus like just the overall issue now that it's on everyone's radar. I, I just wonder what will happen with it, and I'm 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 curious about the future in that sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that Usarna feels strongly about, but was never so much a social mission until now. And it happened organically, as we heard about in the interview. And now that there's some momentum behind it and he's collaborating with local, very highly respected Sayada's, that have been following this in their own way in their own region. It's quite interesting the resources he can now bring together and talked about that at the end, talked about the the shape that that collaboration was taking place in terms of providing education and materials, uh, working in concert with those monks and communities that are already making this a priority themselves. Right. It'll,
2: it'll, if it manifests, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it does. Something I observed in, in Myanmar is like uh, the way that the way things move is often gears that turn behind the scenes (laughs) and so I've seen some really clever and very skillful ways to because there's a there's a conflict right there are not just a majority of monks touching money but even some very very senior uh, monks in positions of power so how you go about shifting that without embarrassing people and having people lose face there's a way to do that so I'm not sure we'll see the machinations of it, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if it unfolds more or not.
1: Yeah. And especially now that there's this greater openness, I mean, there was an openness on the Burmese side of uh, this Facebook thing kind of exploding, and everyone getting a window into what was happening and how people were responding and what was taking place, even if it wasn't quite an accurate telling it was still, through the mechanism of Facebook, it was something everyone could participate in. And hopefully through a podcast like this, which is in English, both his discussion of the matter and our processing it here, that is also carrying the conversation and the messaging to more people to be able to learn the level of detail and context in history about this matter and to have a, a sense of interest and appreciation moving forward to see how it develops, as well as uh, for foreigners in this country, having a renewed sense and sensibility of where they want to fall on how they're making their own donations and how they're viewing um, monks they're in contact with uh, concerning their own following of this, uh, this, this vineyard.
2: Right. Well, it's fascinating topic. Uh, We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Then um, good. It was great. Great being able to discuss someone that we both know so well and have such a history with. Absolutely. Okay, then I think we're good for now. This has been a great talk and uh, connect on the next speaker.
2: Great. I'll see you
1: next time. Okay, great. Take care. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We invite you to rate, review, and share our podcast as every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also make sure to check out our website for our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R.org. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it could be offered there in the future. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharnay, along with Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing, Kishingbat Gamble does our social media templates, and Dragos Bandita and André Francois make our sketches. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us, bringing the guests who have made up the show thus far, as well as the guests themselves, for agreeing to come and share. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible.